Before we air the world broadcast premiere of this week's episode of This Is Hell, I want to take a moment to explain to all y'all what's happening this week and why. This morning, what you are about to hear was pre-recorded and streamed live on Wednesday and Thursday nights at 7 p.m. from our new studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the space where you share with Second Story Studios Art Gallery. Now, I'll be hosting gallery hours tomorrow, Sunday, beginning at 2 p.m., so if you miss the party or the art show, you still have a couple chances to check it out. The show is closing on Sunday, September 1st, and we'll be having a closing party that afternoon from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m., and we hope to see you all there. But the reason we pre-recorded this week's show is because tonight, Saturday, August 24th, I'm appearing on stage on the Michael Brooks Show at 8 p.m. at Lincoln Hall. You can still get tickets at lh-st.com, and there are still some available if you act now. I didn't want to be all groggy and exhausted from doing the four-hour show you're about to hear, so we recorded it earlier this week, and if you are a Patreon subscriber, you heard the live stream Wednesday and Thursday nights. So I want to take this opportunity to thank all our Patreon subscribers and everyone who supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Without you, we could not be able to, we would not be able to provide you with all this new content this week. Thanks for all your support. See you tonight at the Michael Brooks Show, tomorrow at Gallery Hours, and next Sunday at the closing of the annual This Is Art Art Show. Enjoy. That is, if you can enjoy hell. 27 years I've drunk 50,000 beers Woo-hoo, hot damn And they just wash against me Like the sea into tears Neil! This is hell. (laughs) That is loud. We are back with all new content, a completely new episode of This is Hell with live interviews and the latest, freshest moment of truth from regular contributor Jeff Dorch. And I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? If anything? Uh... Couldn't we talk about like nice things on the show? So it's something to, I'd have more look forward to than, uh, let me see, uh, fascism and the rainforest burning down and the Arctic melting. Mm. Why don't we talk about something nice like, uh, oh, damn, I guess when the NBA season's not happening, I can't think of anything nice to talk about. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, I'm glad to be back, but I'm also glad to have taken three weeks off from hell because, like you were just saying, I really need it. And on this week's hell, I have returned for my annual family vacation to Cottage on Lake up north in Michigan. Before I left, I shared some of the small town news I stumbled upon while visiting with another branch of my family. And I mentioned how I would likely have more small town news to tell you about when we did our next all new show, this show. But I may have found bigger news than anything you can find in a small town paper, and I'll be telling you about that in a bit. We also have an interview with environmental historian Bathsheba Dumuth about her new book, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait. 
By looking into the history of Beringia, the islands, peninsulas, coastlines, and waterways that make up the area, Bathsheba finds a past of conversion and transformation, converting energy into materials necessary for existence and transforming the landscape to suit whoever is using the region's resources. In doing so, Bathsheba reveals that capitalism's conversion of life-giving resources into commodities has disrupted the reciprocal way that precarious life in the Arctic has sustained itself for millennia. And what she discovers is that both U.S. capitalism as well as Soviet socialism had a hand in Beringia's devastation. Bathsheba is an environmental historian at Brown University, specializing in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic and in the history of energy and past climates. Bathsheba will be speaking with us live from the Yukon. Following Bathsheba, there's a case to be made against free speech. Well, not free speech, but the concept of free speech. And our second guest this week will make that argument. We speak with journalist P.E. Moskowitz, author of The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. I want to make this perfectly clear, as P.E. does in their book, P.E. Moskowitz supports free speech. The problem is, in the U.S., there is no such thing as free speech. So any argument over any alleged crisis we are having when it comes to free speech, in P.E.'s opinion, is irrelevant. When corporations have the right to free speech, their speech is far louder and heard and rebroadcast by far more media outlets than, say, your speech or mine. When the powerful, wealthy elite, who are the gatekeepers of the media, protect capital flows by silencing critiques of capitalism, there is no free speech. Truly free speech would question the racism, misogyny, transphobia, even the obstacles that interfere with that free speech. But those are not the discussions that we're having today. We'll look deeply into free speech and see what, can, what we can find when we chat it up with P.E. Moskowitz, who was on our show back in June 2017 to discuss their book, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood. P.E. is a former staff member for, staff writer for Al Jazeera America and co-founded Study Hall, a media collaboration with over 1,500 members, which you can find out about at studyhall.xyz. After Bathsheba gives, gives us a tour the history of Beringia and P.E. makes his case against free speech. We'll have the moment of truth a little earlier this week to accommodate Jeff's busy schedule this week. Jeff wonders if maybe it's time we gave the fascists another chance. And in case you are wondering and running to your keyboard right now, I'm pretty sure Jeff's being sarcastic. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm not positive. Pretty sure, though. Then in the third hour of this week's Hell, we'll have a conversation with Ibram X. Kendi, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about his new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. You may remember Ibram being on our show back in July 2016. We spoke with him about his then-just-published book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won a National Book Award for nonfiction that year. It also attained the far higher honor of being selected as one of the best books featured on This Is Hell in 2016. Again, a far higher honor. I mean, that honor is given out when we are really, really high. And after Ibram, we're going to learn exactly how screwed up the media coverage is of Bernie Sanders, as well as how bad U.S. news has been when it comes to reporting on Brazil. First, we'll talk to writer, video host, and the host of the Katie Helper Show podcast, 
Katie Halper. Katie's recent writing includes her two most recent articles at FAIR.org, the website of fairness and accuracy in reporting, including MSNBC's anti-Sanders bias makes it forget how to do math, and her earlier piece, Sidney Ember's Secret Sources, wherein Katie writes that the New York Times' Sidney Ember's articles on Sanders often quote as neutral authorities, individuals who are on the other side of a wide ideological divide, with long-standing antipathies to Sanders' left socioeconomic perspective. And we'll wrap up this week's show when we talk to our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Muir. Last week, Brian posted an article that, like Katie's writing, was at fair.org. In fact, this cell has been featuring writers and contributors to FAIR since nearly the beginning of our show, dating back to 1996. Brian's latest at FAIR is headlined, Media Blackout on Brazil's Anti-Bolsonaro Protests, and asks the questions... The question, why are the New York Times and The Guardian downplaying resistance to Brazil's far-right president? Brian edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is also co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program, From the South. Brian was on our show most recently in June when he reported to us on, you guessed it, other protests taking place in Brazil that were being falsely reported by the U.S. press. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is from Alice Bradley at lifehacker.com.au. Take take aspirin for your headache, not acetaminophen or ibuprofen, as the latter two can have adverse effects on your stomach lining. Alcohol causes liver acids to rise, so take an ant. That seems like it would have a problem with your stomach lining too. Yeah, so take an antacid as well as your aspirin. Eat breakfast or have something greasy to eat. Also, stomach problems before going out drinking, as some suggest, the fattiness absorbs alcohol. When you do have breakfast, make certain it is high in carbs and antioxidants. Stay hydrated to combat fatigue. Drink green or black teas, not coffee, as coffee is a diuretic and leads to dehydration, which causes hangovers. Beginning to think maybe not drinking might be the <laughs> ultimate hangover cure. That makes this week's hangover cure a combination of many of our past cures, cogently explained by someone named Alice Bradley at lifehacker.com.au. I was so disappointed when she had an American accent. I'm always so disappointed when I see Americans going overseas and taking jobs away from other people. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell I have returned safely and soundly without having done any damage to my mortal coil. Usually while away for summer break, I come back with cracked ribs or a broken toe or an unknown virus that attacked me from one of those biological weapons delivery systems known as children. When I return from break, I always share the local news from small town northern Michigan, but this year it was... More of the same, America's heartland, also known as flyover country by dicks, still has a serious meth problem, according to police reports and judges' records printed in local papers. They also have a problem with drinking and driving and a real issue with responding to court summons and appearing for trials and pretrial dates. I also learned from the Bay City News that if police pull over a suspect and find torn-up lottery tickets in their wallets or cars, Those tickets don't mean the alleged perp is bad at the lottery as much as it means they're crack dealers. Apparently, it is common knowledge, at least among Bay City cops, that crack dealers use torn-up lottery tickets to package crack. 
which when you think about it is the dumbest possible way to package rock or powder cocaine. That's why they've always used tiny Ziploc baggies or just some saran wrap. And I'm starting to think Bay City cops may be arresting people of color for losing the lottery. There was also the annual Dream Cruise in Detroit where huge crowds line tens of miles of streets as they reenact white flight with cars lining up for miles into the suburbs, then driving south, barely entering the city of Detroit, just crossing 8 Mile Road, and immediately turning around doing a 180 to flee back to the burbs. The cruise is a glowing contradiction to the world we live in today. It celebrates, even reveres the car culture that has been a major contributor to global warming. The cruise's fumes are filled with carbon dioxide, which is a deadly gas that even in smaller doses can have long-term effects. The Dream Cruise also glorifies the automotive industry and its corporate masters, despite those masters having fled from their workers long ago, replacing those still loyal workers with lower-paid substitutes in impoverished nations overseas. Why these people are still loyal to their brands that stab them in the back, I have no idea. The Cruise reveals a remarkable ability to believe in myths while being steeped in denial, that kind of belief is nothing new when you consider the number capitalism does on our psyche. On vacation, I wondered why those, like the former auto industry workers who were exploited by bosses, shareholders, and companies, would then look up to their oppressors, thieves of workers' wages, and deify the corporations that robbed them while working on the assembly line. Why do we suffer at their expense and then lift those up who caused the suffering, raising them to the level of titans, which in Greek mythology are children of Earth and Uranus. And when you're talking about the capitalist a-holes who worked hard exploding, exploiting others' work and destroying the planet, Earth and Uranus, that's about right. Do we all secretly wish to be those a-holes to suppress others, to profit from others' work as we do nothing? Do we all really want to lavish upon ourselves the wasteful goods of overconsumption that the entertainment industry has apparently successfully preached to us is the ultimate goal of life? Does capitalism make us all want to be as wasteful as those who don't care about the effects of that waste on the planet or on anyone's lives but their own? Do we all want to be in a position of wealth and power so we can benefit from the suffering of others? Is the goal of capitalism to find joy in the suffering of others? Is schadenfreude the sheer pleasure one has in seeing the misery of others the oil that greases the wheels of capitalism? I've never understood why people laugh at others' suffering. Sure, I've done it. When I was a kid, I loved the Three Stooges. But there always seemed to be something in that laughter and cheer, something off and not quite right. I would laugh and then reflect upon the pain Curly must have suffered with his head in that printing press, and suddenly I'd feel sorry for laughing. As a kid, I was teased due to my disability of being legally blind. I watched as other kids laughed at my misery at having to wear sunglasses even when it was kind of dark out because my eyes cannot see it in any amount of sunlight, of having to hold books close to my face to read the print, it was a bit too close for my vision. All that teasing, sure, it drove me nuts. So maybe I'm more sensitive to laughing and feelings of joy when others suffer. But I certainly don't blame those who are laughing, who are enjoying others' misery. It makes complete sense to me that they find happiness in others' pain because that's what capitalism is, the celebration of profiting from others' work and the glee those profits create while imposing upon and insisting upon pain being done to others. Schadenfreude 
would seem to be the ultimate goal of capitalism, to enjoy your riches, smiling, laughing, while riding around in your luxury yacht without ever considering those who helped you buy that yacht or the impact the making and sailing of that yacht has on the world we live in and the working and living conditions of the workers who built it. Capitalism thrives on denial and a self-deluding worldview that your contributions to society have helped others instead of what it really has done, made other lives far more miserable than your own. It's not your fault. You were born that way. Okay, not born, but you were taught and trained that success is being defined by the number in your bank account, and that happiness, no matter how many others may have suffered, is certain to follow. In capitalism, we all strive to be the oppressor because that's all we've ever been taught to be, oppressors. So if it makes sense, then, that in capitalism, we find happiness in the misery of others because capitalism incentivizes misery for profit. Capitalism is a religion of cruelty with faith and greed and a willful ignorance of all the damage being done to human bodies and all nature that surrounds us. Capitalism praises our inhumanity to others, which is allowed by a cost-benefit analysis that ignores what happens to anyone else, what happens to everyone else. Teasing, taunting, bullying, these are all character traits promoted by capitalism. No wonder it loves professional sports so much. It revels in the poor sportsmanship that is part of the game. Sports also neatly defines and demarcates winners and losers, another classifying aspect of capitalism that inherently endorses a caste system based on class. Capitalism teaches us to not care about others as long as we get paid more. It teaches us to be mean, to be intolerant, because those defense mechanisms protect us from any deeper consideration of the impact our capitalist lives have on others and the world around us. No, I'm not surprised when I hear someone laughing while teasing a child, a child in fear of what might happen next. Makes sense. That's what capitalism has taught us to do, find pleasure in others' duress. Like watching Detroit's dream cruise, capitalism has ingrained in us an ability to ignore its toxic fumes that it causes and breathe them in deeply as gearheads enjoy the poison without considering its effects. They line up and watch the totems of a car culture parade by that has led to massive climate disruptions, sea level rises, and coming this fall, really high food prices as U.S. farming was devastated during this year's planting season. And that's the really screw, screwed up thing about capitalism. It, changes our morals and ethics. It changes the way we see the world around us to the point that we've actually found joy in our own suffering. We actually cheer and applaud as the machines that are destroying our own planet slowly roll through a traffic jam, consuming wasteful amounts of climate change causing fuel. And we breathe it all in deeply while all I can do is exhale. This is hell. Coming up on this week's This is Hell, a history of the Arctic that reveals how commodification caused climate change, the case against the concept of free speech, and the case for actual free speech. We'll learn how to be an anti-racist. We'll try to figure out why the media has a bias against Bernie Sanders. We'll be told what is actually happening in Brazil that the U.S. media ignores. And during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders if maybe, just maybe, it's time we gave the fascists another chance. And before you start tweeting or posting or sending us emails, we're all betting Jeff's being very sarcastic. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. The planet is on fire. 
So yes, this is hell. The history of the region making up Beringia, the islands, peninsulas, and shorelines and waterways that make up the Bering Strait is a history of life lived with nature and interrupted by commodification, capitalism, socialism, the global desire for energy resources, and even climate change. Here to take us on a tour of this Arctic region, live from the Yukon, environmental historian Bathsheba Demuth is author of Floating Coast and Environmental History of the Bering Strait. Welcome to This Is Hell, Bathsheba. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Beth Chiba is an environmental historian at Brown University, specializing in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic and in the history of energy and past climates. She has lived in and studied Arctic communities across Eurasia and North America. And as I said, we are speaking to her live from the Yukon. You can find out more about Beth Chiba at brdemuth, that's D-E-M-U-T-H dot com, and you can follow her on Twitter at the same place, B-R-D-E-M-U-T-H. You write at your website, my interest in northern environments and cultures began when I was 18 and moved to the village of Old Crow in the Yukon. For over two years, I mushed huskies, hunted caribou, fished for salmon, tracked bears, and otherwise learned to live in the uh, taiga and tundra in the years since i visited arctic communities across eurasia and north america what originally drew you to the Ar- arctic what was your fascination with the arctic so i was a, a farm kid from iowa and i think like lots of people in the midwest i had um a real desire to go see wilderness and kind of get out there in the world um and I was also 18, so I had really no idea what that meant at all, and convinced my parents I should take a gap year between high school and college, and ended up living in this little indigenous community in the Yukon Territory, which is actually where I am right now. Um, I'm back up here to visit my, my host family. Um, and so I came up here kind of on a wild hair, honestly, and then with the plan of staying for a couple of months, and ended up staying for a couple of years. When, when you usually hear about people going up to Alaska at that age, what they're usually doing is going up to work in the salmon hatcheries or in the canneries or something like that. Were you, is that what you were considering, going up and making money, or was your plan to going up and making a, more, a deeper connection with nature? Yeah, I honestly didn't know about the canneries, and in some ways I'm, I'm glad that I didn't, didn't do that. And I really wasn't motivated by money, um, not because I... I you know, don't have those motivations, but because I was 18 and sort of was able to imagine sort of not making money for a while. Um, and I came up here honestly, because I was really interested in writing and in photography and maybe because of a lack of imagination, I didn't think that I had a lot of material in my little town in Iowa, although in retrospect, I actually had plenty. Um, and I, I wanted to come someplace and, and really experience something new. Um, so it was really more about, um, kind of having the capacity to get out into the into big wilderness that was my original inspiration. You write that 20,000 years ago during the last ice age, the water passing beneath them, pass, passing underneath the people of Beringia, was land. People hunted mammoths and caribou across a corridor of earth now cleaved by just 50 miles of ocean of geological and ecological unity remains in the territory encircled by the Mackenzie and Yukon rivers in North America the Anadir and the Kolyma rivers in Russia and the oceans north of St. Louis Island and the south of Wrangell Island. From river to river and sea to sea, geographers call this country Beringia, 
a geological and ecological unity. Do the people of Beringia view themselves as more of Beringia or as Russians or Americans? Because often when those in the West talk about unity, it's about nations and nation states, not unifying factors that are ecological or geological. And if so, so I'm, I'm wondering, if is that the way that they view themselves, connected by ecology and geology, not nationality? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, and I think it's one that you can kind of track changing over the course of the 20th century and in some ways changing again in the, in the 21st. Um, when I sort of pick up the story in the 19th century, people very much had regional identities and were not thinking of themselves as nations because nation states did not have a presence here um, really at all at that point in the middle of the 19th century. And during the 20th century and particularly after the Second World War and during the Cold War, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of push for people on the American side of the Bering Strait to think of themselves as Americans and for people on the Russian side of the Bering Strait to think of themselves as Soviet citizens. Um, but in some ways, the, the ties that go back and forth across the street, the, the language ties and the cultural ties really survive that effort, um, even kind of without, with the force of these big military states behind it, um, because people have family connections that, that span the Bering Strait and they have histories that, that span. Um, so I think that, you know, when you're up here, there's a way in which people talk about being from Northwestern Alaska and understand it as being similar to being from far Northeastern Russia, um, far more than being from the rest of the United States, um, or, you know, being from Moscow, um, because, you know, because the regional identity is really strong because cultural identity remains really sort of key to people's lives. Um, and it just feels really different than, um, you know, Washington, D.C. So uh, you also write that my expectations were disciplined by an education that explained nature's past, geology, biology, and ecology, separately from human history, from culture, economics, and politics. It was divide that endowed human beings alone with the power to make change. Nature was the thing acted upon. What happens when we separate geology, biology, and ecology from human history, from culture, economics, and politics. What happens to our understanding of history when we separate those things into different little boxes? I mean, I think, and this is obviously my my bias as an environmental historian, um, that it really narrows and kind of impoverishes our view of what is causal and important in the past. Um, and it it kind of emerges this idea of history as something that only humans make and that is independent from the environment more generally. Um, it's really a very kind of recent European idea. Um, and it's not one that has grounds in lots of other intellectual traditions and even in European traditions of understanding how change happens um, that go back a little bit further. And I think that it, you know, it, it causes us to really imagine that we don't operate within ecological systems that actually both enable human activities and also put constraints on them. Um, and that that ends up having real impacts on how we imagine our social lives and our economic lives. Um, and so one of the things that I hope to do as an environmental historian is kind of tease out the ways in which, even if we are trained to ignore the, the kind of embeddedness of human history within the ecosystems that really give us the basis of our daily lives, just a question of kind of going back and reading it for that kind of information and for those kinds of relationships. You mentioned living in Beringia collapsed this separation between, oh, let me have to go back to my notes here, because uh, you're right, living in Beringia collapsed this separation that is the divide that endowed human beings alone 
with the power to make change. And you say the living in Beringia collapsed the separation. I was apprenticed to a Gwich'in musher, a task that in its specifics was about sled dogs, but generally required learning how not to die. How much time is spent not dying in the Arctic? And doesn't spending time not dying, doesn't that make life work, worse? What's attractive to a life lived not dying? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so part of what I mean by that is that, you know, if, if you live in a temperate climate, um, the the kind of sheer force of the environment that you're in is something that you can um, ignore a lot of the time, right? You can, if there's a terrible blizzard or there's a tornado or something like that. Um, but most of your daily life, you don't have to really imagine that there could be an event from outside you that's really going to have any impact. And that you know, really isn't the case up here where partly because there just aren't as many people. So if you have some sort of accident when you're off alone in the bush, you're really in trouble because you're not necessarily going to be able to get help. Um, And partly because, you know, you're just functionally not at the top of the food chain. Um, So you need to kind of understand that there are other animals around that that might not necessarily um, always have a positive encounter with you, depending on how you uh, approach them. Um, and I didn't know any of this because from Iowa where you very much are at the top of the food chain and, and there's only so much trouble you can get yourself in. Um, and so I felt like when I first got here that so much of what I was learning was um, how to pay attention to the weather properly, how to kind of read the signals that, um, you know, animal tracks are sending about where you should and shouldn't go, um, how to think about your actions a couple steps ahead just in case, you know, you're, you're being a little careless or you're not paying a lot of attention because that can can really have uh, really serious consequences for you. If you're, you know, if you forget your snowshoes or something and you're off on a, a mushing trip that lasts a couple of hours and then you want to stop and make a fire, but the snow is up to your waist, you're not going to be able to move around without your snowshoes. Um, so really, you know, really simple things like that. Um, and because I came up here when I was 18, I think it really made an impression on me that you need to kind of pay attention to things that aren't people because, you know, people are very important, but then there are also these other circumstances that are really going to. And I actually found that that was, was really very enriching, actually. It, was, it didn't make life sort of lesser. It made it in some ways more um, kind of more present and more clear what, kind of what the stakes were. Um, and I really missed it actually when I went, finally went to college. And, um, I remember kind of missing that sensation of really kind of paying attention and looking around me and keeping track of things because you just don't have to. Yeah. I just came back from vacation and every night we have a family bonfire and I spend time going out and just picking up twigs, just picking up kindling to start the fire. And for some reason I find just walking around, stooped over, picking up sticks. I find that a lot more rewarding than, uh, unfortunately, a lot more, a lot other aspects of my life. And you talk about the impact that uh, nature can have on uh, history. And you ask, what power do human ideas have to change their surroundings? And how are people in turn shaped by their habitual relationships with the world? Put another way, what is the nature of history when nature is part of what makes history? And that made me think, is climate change denial an aggressive attempt at ignoring the impact nature has had on history? And do we avoid recognizing nature's impact because we want to avoid recognizing that we don't have as much control over history as we might hope? Yeah, that's a really interesting framing. And I 
I think that that is in some ways, um, you know, I think that climate denial has lots of roots from, you know, everything from it actually being funded by oil companies to, you know, it's, it's a thought that's really unpleasant to think so that there's like a psychological protection to just pretending it's not happening, even if the, the sort of facts on the ground indicate otherwise. Um, but I do think that some of it is, is a reluctance to admit that if you change the ecological systems that we depend upon completely through human action, that, you know, at the end of the day, nature's going to be fine, right? You know, the, the earth has gone through various cataclysms and rearrangements of species before and life finds a way of flourishing out of that eventually. But whether or not it's good for people is a really different question. And I think that, you know, there's a piece of climate denial that's about not imagining a world in which our actions are actually uh, so altering those systems that we depend upon that um, there's not a lot of recourse. So you also write, uh, and I'm going to read a little bit of an extract here from your book. Uh, you write that for the past three million years, uh, Arctic and subarctic Beringia has been so cold that ice and snow linger late in summer and places never retreat. The white surface refrain early two-thirds of sunlight uh, back into space. These, this pairs down the land's productive ability. It is from solar radiation that photosynthetic bacteria and algae and plants take sunlight and with water and air and soil turns it into tissue. The energy in that tissue can then pass through the metabolisms of other organisms from sedge grass to hair into the body of a wolf or a human. The death of one living thing becomes life in another. An ecosystem is the aggregate of many species' habits of transformation. There are ways of moving energy from its origin in the sun across space and condensing it over time. To be alive is to take a place in that chain of conversions. Are you any more aware of that conversion when you are in the Arctic? Because I was wondering if being cognizant of those kinds of conversions of energy could change the way in which we view the world, even if we live in densely populated areas. So are you more aware when you are in the Arctic of that conversion, and can we apply that awareness of transformation and conversion to our daily lives no matter where we live? Yeah, I think so. And I, um, I think that what kind of taught me to pay attention to, you know, what I in the book called the geography of energy is really from living in the Arctic, because you spend, you spend a lot of your daily life paying attention to where it is that you can get fuel and where it is that you can get food. Um, and those are both energy sources. Um, and not, I don't mean that in like a really kind of reductive kind of economic sense. It's just in a very basic, you know, you need to be able to find animals that can provide you with food and you need to be able to find, you know, some sort of fuel that you can burn to keep warm uh, because the other option is, you know, not learning how not to die basically. Um, and so I think that that experience being here in the Arctic when I was young really taught me to, to pay attention to that and, when I was kind of doing the historical research for this book, um, it's part of why I ended up thinking about energy as kind of the thing that was binding together both the the kind of ecological history and then the human strands of its history. Um, and it is a thing that I think we can really pay attention to in um, in our lives, no matter where you live. I think it's starker in the Arctic because it's a lot harder to rely on things like agriculture, which is of course, you know, its own kind of energy system, but one that, you know, most of us live at kind of a remove from 
um, in temperate climates. Um, and up here, you're a little bit more confronted with it on the on the day to day that you're reliant on other organisms for their energy in some form. Um, but it's made me a lot more cognizant of where it is that the energy that I use, not just in a fossil fuel sense, but in a food sense and a um, in a sort of day to day way, um, and thinking about it as a way of imagining yourself as part of an ecosystem rather than as something that kind of floats above it, right? That's the food that we eat and the other kinds of fuel that we use is really kind of what, what pulls us back down with the rest of life on the planet. You mentioned how the begin. You mentioned the beginning of uh, commercial whaling in the 1840s, and you write what made the 1840s distinct in Beringia was thus not change, but new agents of transformation. The foreigners who arrived with their proliferation of ideas merely followed up other people who had used the same area for resources. From whalers killing for the market to bureaucrats trying to make borders between states to young Bolshevik evangelists promising utopia, foreigners came to Beringia with habits of mind, minds born far away. They came, as I had, familiar with temperate agricultural bounties and the industrial capacity to take the energy in things, trees, coal, and oil, and turn into a propulsion and power." Does Beringian, do the people of Beringia then, do they have a fear of outsiders? Are they always in fear of others coming to exploit the resources in their area and trying to change their culture as well as their relationship with nature? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know if fear is quite the right, right word, but it's certainly a sense of, um, I would say, measured distrust of people just coming in a lot of promises um, that, you know, we're going to come take your whales or we're going to come take your oil or, you know, whatever is in vogue in the particular century at hand. Um, And then sort of alongside that, usually alongside the research exploitation comes this idea that, you know, we're going to make things better, right? We're going to bring more technology or or more bounty or something like that. Um, And it often doesn't work out that way here. Um, as it's true, you know, in many parts of the world that are kind of on the, um, the producing end of capitalism rather than on the receiving end of it. Um, so I would say that, that people are, have a pretty healthy, um, skepticism of the kind of utopian promises that often come, particularly, I think with energy boom bust kind of economics that, you know, every time an oil company comes into town and says, well, look, we're going to make these many jobs and we're going to, you know, build this infrastructure for you. And then a couple of years later, it goes bust because the oil well wasn't great. You know, that that kind of cycle is something that people um, in the Arctic and in Beringia are certainly very familiar with. You write about what Beringia made of capitalism and socialism and how modernity operates without the caloric ease of agriculture and industry. What do you mean by modernity operating without the caloric ease of agriculture and industry, and what impact could that have on, no matter what the system is, capitalism or socialism? Yeah, one of the things that really fascinated me um, about this region is that it does not have um, kind of the the two basic things that um, most modern economies assume are going to be kind of the basis of production, which is agriculture and the capacity to have lots of industrial development. Um, And I think that this was, it was particularly kind of striking to me because I was trained as a Russian historian. So, you know, we, you read lots of Marx as a Russian historian so that you can sort of get into the Russian revolution and the ideas behind it. 
Um, and of course, for Marx, the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution are these really sort of critical threshold points for human history and, and the kind of trajectory of human history that separates itself from nature and therefore is going to kind of progress toward utopia. Um, so I was really curious when I started graduate school, sort of what, you know, what do those ideas and what does a state that's so deeply inspired by Marx do in a place where you can't have an agricultural revolution and it's really, really difficult to make industry work on the kind of scales and, and models that were so core to um, the, the Soviet system operating. And, and then of course, you know, the same is, is quite true on the American side that, you know, it's still cold, so you can't have agriculture, which is of course a really key piece of American settler colonialism. You know, it's how you inspire getting white settlers to come expropriate land from indigenous peoples and sort of turn it into something that's kind of recognizable to the state as a productive space that doesn't really work in Alaska um, and it certainly doesn't work in northwestern Alaska. Um, and then industry has the same challenges in the north everywhere. Um, so I was really curious, you know, what happens when, you know, these these two ideologies, which really imagine themselves as kind of liberating people from natural constraints, come to a place where the, the sort of formative critical pieces of that just don't work as well. When those people de- depend on those natural constraints, it, it would seem like socialism and capitalism, neither one of them is necessarily universally compatible with our geographical or geological systems or biological or ecological systems, which is fascinating because why would an economic system created in a different climate, a different culture, necessarily be able to be applied as a template anywhere in the world? It wouldn't necessarily make sense. You write from their ubiquity, Chukchi, Inupiat, and Yupik, uh, the peoples of Beringia, wove ravens into their narratives of origin. The birds are both tricksters and saviors, using their wits to fetch earth for drowning people, to cast away the spirits that forment reindeer, or to kill a great whale to make land. The people in Point Hope have a story about a raven that covets a skin ball hoarded underground by a night-loving peregrine falcon. The ball holds the whole life-giving sun. Raven's plot is to free the light in order to make a new world, a better world for human beings. Liberating energy is the cause of human transformation in a story first told long before its tellers met a metal oil lamp, let alone an internal combustion engine. How would you compare that new and better world the raven brings to the new and better utopias that capitalism and socialism promised? Yeah, that's a really great question and, and um, kind of moment to pull out of the book. Um, because what I found really interesting about the the kind of parable of the raven as it's told, and there, there are versions of it all across Beringia, so I'm kind of flattening them here into one uh, one telling. But, um, you know, the, the kind of end of that story in Beringia is that raven does get the ball of light, um, but also realizes that the world doesn't work well unless there's also darkness. So it's not actually, he doesn't completely take the sun. He realizes that there needs to be kind of this, this back and forth with both kind of the, the, the light itself. And then you also need a dark season or you need winter or you need death basically, right? It's an acknowledgement that that's a kind of critical part to, to what life is. Um, and one of the things that, I realized as I was doing the research for this book, looking at the ways in which both American style capitalism and, you know, Soviet style communism come to inhabit the Bering Strait is that so much of those ideologies 
are kind of about ignoring or just um, kind of covering over or allowing people to not deal with death, right? Um, and particularly because so many of the resources I talk about in this book come from animals. Um, so they're, you know, it comes from whales, it comes from walruses or reindeer. In order to get those resources, you have to kill an animal. Um, and that in the, the kind of raven parable, that fact is never forgotten, right? The, the kind of reliance on the deaths of other beings in order to make your own self and your own society um, is never out of view. But I think that there's a way in which um, both kind of capitalism and communism have a tendency to want to forget that, right? They want to imagine that we can escape death, that we don't have to deal with that kind of cyclical, um, natural process that, of course, remains quite inevitable. Um, and I think that in the capitalist case, the processes of commodification are where that is the clearest, right? That, you know, it's very possible to live in the United States now and not have any contact with any of the organisms that you rely on actually dying, right? You're not watching the harvest of the plants. You're not watching the animals that you eat, if you eat meat, die. Um, and so there is this illusion that's kind of lived feeling that you're not actually participating in the deaths of anything. Um, and you certainly don't have to watch the kind of immiseration of peoples elsewhere in the world whose, whose labor um, is often going into the, the products that you consume um, because you're just at such a distance from it. Um, and I think that there's something, um, you know, even today in the Arctic at the proximity to those kind of just basic life and death choices um, and the reliance on the deaths of others remains really clear. You tell the story of watching a whale being gutted, <clears throat> and one of the men gutting the whale tells you that the whale had chosen to be killed because he had come up alongside the harpooner in the boat. You write, quote, a year before, people told me the same thing, the choice of death about a bowhead whale on St. Lawrence Island. In less explicit terms, this was how I was taught to hunt caribou. On the Gwich'in Tundra, you live here by never boasting about the number of animals that died and by giving meat to people without any. You live here by not offending the beings that make your life possible. You live here because others' lives give themselves to you. To articulate the act of consumption of taking energy this way is not romantic. It's a political assertion. The politics of the gift, like all politics, are a vision of time. What do you mean by all politics being a vision of time? Because I find that to be a fascinating concept. Yeah, I, what I meant by that there is that, um, well, a couple of things. One is that I think that, you know, most politics and kind of the ways in which we form our struggles over things are about visions of the future, right? They're about you know, what kind of world it is that we want to make for ourselves in the near future and then perhaps for our children and grandchildren in a, in a longer trajectory. So they, they tend to be thinking about time, um, but also politics are usually drawing on something from the past in order to articulate that. Um, so, you know, conservative politics draw on kind of a particular strand of the past to imagine a particular kind of future. Um, and more liberal politics are often drawing on kind of idea of escaping aspects of the past that we want to imagine ourselves as able to kind of overcome um, and be liberated from. And I, I found that when I talk to people about the ways in which hunting works for many indigenous peoples in the Arctic, which is that it's, um, you know, still taking place within the rules and within traditions that come from very much outside um, either capitalist politics or communist politics. 
that people tended to look at that and say, oh, you're just sort of romanticizing, you know, what, what people up here are doing, rather than kind of understanding, thinking about hunting as kind of this reciprocal relationship as actually being its own kind of politics, right? And that what people are articulating when they say, you know, this animal gave itself um, or, or kind of versions of that is they're actually saying, you know, what I'm imagining is a world in which today this animal gives itself and then tomorrow I'm going to be asked to give something back in some form. Um, and that, that is its own kind of political assertion and it's imagining a future um, in which you're not always the person who's taking or the, the being that's the taker. Um, so I was, I was kind of hoping to um, articulate the fact that that politics have a lot of different forms um, and the ways in which people choose to communicate those and choose to practice them um, can have really different. And that they can be influenced and affected by nature. You write a whale or a caribou giving itself holds open a future where today's recipient, the killer will be called upon to give, as you were just saying, a reciprocal ethics, acknowledging that all life shifts between consuming and providing commodities make no such demands. Our commodities is commodification itself then a political act, an unreciprocal political act? Yeah, I think that's, um, I like that articulation. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the process of making something into a commodity um, is, is sort of the process of cutting yourself off from the chance of having that reciprocal relationship. Um, and if your only choice is to consume things through commodities, in some ways, that really impoverishes our our relationship with the world because it's really difficult to have a reciprocal relationship with a commodity. Um, and it's one of the things I found most striking actually in the research was um, looking at various societies that have relied on whales, um, including capitalist whalers in the 19th century and then Soviet whalers in the 20th century. And that both whalers, you know, they're both of these kind of whaling cultures come in and they're trying to kill as many whales as possible for very different motivations because one is coming from a market system and the other one is kind of feeding into a socialist system. Both of those systems really did not recognize the way in which the whalers themselves had an experience of that labor um, that they found very alienating. Um, and in particular, the kind of inability for both the market or the sort of socialist state to think about whales as having feelings, as having um, kind of sentience and able to recognize how the work of killing whales, if you are, you know, are kind of constantly in experiencing their sentience and the, the behaviors that look like sort of social behavior ends up being really hard on the whalers, right? And they're, they're kind of discussions of how, um, difficult this work was because basically they were turning these animals into commodities and didn't have formal space within their their sort of own worlds to acknowledge any kind of reciprocal relationship uh, with with the animals that they were killing. So you also write that fossil fuels freed the use of energy from human toil, allowing human history to seem separate from the rest of time. It wrote concern for cyclical life out of most calculations of value cycles after all have a peak and a decline a season for birthing and then for dying they invoke mortality ideas of ever-increasing growth emphasize the life phase as if we as a social body are permanent adolescents hungry and rising immortal this made possible a new idea of liberty released from the constraints of the matter that made us and from the 
precariousness of beings. Why are humans such a seeming danger to ourselves once we're freed from human toil? Why doesn't that leisure time translate into great accomplishments rather than destructive ones? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, and it's a hard question, I think, because obviously the the freedom from some kinds of toil does produce really amazing artwork and literature. And, you know, the, the fact that I wasn't hunting all my food made it possible to write this book, right? So um, it, it, it's not all terrible. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the, the just kind of draw ease and um, and not even necessarily recognizing that there are other choices, honestly, because I, I don't feel like when I grew up in the, you know, late part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st that um, I don't think I would have imagined that perhaps having an easy life wasn't the most meaningful one um, unless I had come up to the Arctic, right? Um, because it's just what you're presented with and it, it seems like the, the way to go about things and um, all the social pressures around you are telling you that if you make more money or you're more productive, that, that that's what's going to really give your life meaning. Um, and it's hard to get outside of that, I think. Um, and I don't imagine that I do it perfectly at all. It's um, because that's, that's sort of the social world that we live in. Um, if you grow up in the United States in the 21st century. Just a couple more questions for you, Bathsheba. One is just kind of silly. And that is, President Trump told reporters last Sunday that he's serious about attempting to buy Greenland. Trump said it's something we talked about. Denmark essentially owns it. We're very good allies with Denmark, calling it essentially a large real estate deal, adding they're losing a tremendous amount of money. So we'll see what happens. In reaction, Danish Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson told the newspaper Sermis Sag on Sunday, Greenland is not for sale. Greenland is not Danish. Greenland belongs to Greenland. I strongly hope that this is not meant seriously. NBC News quoted Anna Kutze, Kuko, a 63-year-old lifelong resident of Greenland, saying she believes Islanders take Trump's idea as a sick joke by a crazy president. Today, there was more breaking news on this. Trump is now canceled a trip that he was going to take to Denmark because he's so upset about the Danish prime minister not willing to sell him something that the Danish people do not own in light of climate change and opening up Greenland for exploitation and people like Trump and the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo seeing this as a great resource extraction opportunity. What does that say to you about Trump's and Pompeo's? What does that say to you about the conservative relationship with nature? Um. Well, I think there's, there are two things that were really striking to me about the Greenland case, one of which is that Trump did not appear to recognize that the people who actually live in Greenland are Inuit um, and actually have a voice in what happens to the place that they live in. And he saw it completely as a relationship with Denmark. Um, so it was, I mean, it was like a 19th century colonial throwback kind of moment um, and, and had sort of that it had sort of an edge of manifest destiny to it to me. Like, well, I'm just going to go buy this thing because that will make the U S bigger. And um, then that will be something I can say I did with my presidency. Um, so I guess those kind of colonial ideas appear to be alive and well. Um, but I think more generally the, the attitude of this particular administration, um, which I think is a, a sort of even more extreme version of what bubbles under a lot of conservative discussions of resource use um, is just an, a complete desire to kind of take the money and run. Um, you know, 
pull out whatever value you can from the ground, um, pull out whatever minerals you can, go get the oil where you can still get it and go sell it um, and kind of damn the consequences. And I, I thought earlier this spring um, when the Department of um, Energy rebranded natural gas as freedom gas to be sort of the ultimate expression of this, like we're, we're just going to pretend that that this is kind of the essence of the project is to, is to make freedom by burning fossil fuels. Um, even though, you know, as a, as a professor, when I talk to students who are 18 and 19 and 20, they see the burning of fossil fuels as the exact opposite of freedom, right? It is the thing that is denying them a future that they want to live in. Um, but, you know, I guess if you're 72, that looks different. Um, Maybe environmentalists should start calling it French gas. Maybe that will turn off Donald Trump and make it. <laughs> that, that would help. <laughs> One last question for you. We have been speaking with environmental historian Bathsheba Demuth, who is author of Floating Coast and Environmental History of the Bering Strait. And this is a fascinating book, not only just as kind of a you know cultural history, but also a travelogue in a sense, but also a philosophical book and a real deep examination of just what is meant by the world around us and politics around it. It's really a fascinating book, and I've enjoyed it very much. Our last question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience will hate your response. You write that imagining another politics, one not so covetous of all energy and so bent on the fictions of enclosure, one not so blind to our place in the family of things might be a start. We can still wager on the world we wish to compose. And you talk about how capitalism or how socialism, all that is seemingly is like a capitalism temporarily on steroids in order to try to overcome all of the problems and try to fix all of the shortcomings of capitalism. So the difference between the goals of capitalism and socialism Aren't that aren't that different when it comes to trying to fix capitalism and employing capitalism within that process? And it made me think about the Green New Deal and how the Green New Deal is based a lot on new technologies that will have to be created or resources that will have to be used to update the infrastructure. More than anything, do we need a less covetous, a less energy-consuming politics? And to what degree does the Green New Deal embrace uh, a less energy-consuming politics when it would seem that would have to consume a lot of energy in order to get to many of their goals? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, um, I mean, I think one thing with the Green New Deal is that it's at this point it's sort of a set of principles rather than you know specific plans and that it will take, you know, actually having a president who is wanting to carry it out to get to the planning stage. Um, but I do think one of the things that I sort of hope to do as a historian is show people that people all around the world, and in, in my case around the Arctic, since that's the part of the world I know best, um, have lived really incredibly rich, meaningful lives with very, very different energy consumption profiles than the ones that, you know, a middle-class American takes for granted. And so it's not saying that we have to kind of give up the things that make life enjoyable, that make it really, truly rich, and the thing that you want to get up and do in the morning to sort of decrease our carbon consumption, um, because people have done that for actually thousands of years. 
Um, and I don't mean some sort of romantic return to the past because we have too many people on the planet to do that. It is going to take a lot of technology. Um, but I also think it takes the kind of cultural will to say, you know, we don't actually need or even derive a lot of meaning from all of the consuming that we do. Um, and that there's actually a kind of liberation in that, right? Of saying we don't need as many consumer choices. We don't need to be constantly driven by consumption. Um, there's a capacity to create societies with different values. Um, and one of the things I find interesting about sort of studying the U.S. and the Soviet Union side by side is that both countries at various points in their history have actually made those kinds of choices, even within systems that are quite covetous of using energy and kind of imagine themselves in, in very sort of technologically um, energy consumptive terms. Um, so I, I don't think it's impossible. Um, I do think it takes a lot of work um, and it will take some less cynical people in political power um, but I don't think, you know, it's consigning us to a terrible life in the future or something to say that we need to use less. Um, I think it's just a different one. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. Bathsheba is author of Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait. You can follow her on Twitter at B-R-D-E-M-U-T-H. You can find out more about her at the same place, B-R-D-E-M-U-T-H dot com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Take care. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell coming up in a bit. We will have the return of P.E. Moskowitz. We had him on in the past to talk about his book back in June 2017, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood. This time he's on to talk about his new book, the Case Against Free Speech, the First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. P is a former staff writer for Al Jazeera America and has written for publications including The Guardian, New York Times, NewYork.com, New Republic, blah, blah, blah. You can find out more about P.E. at Moskowitz.xyz. P.E. co-founded Study Hall, a media collaborative with over 1,500 members, which you can find at StudyHall.xyz. I know, Alex, I'm working on that problem there. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell because we had some time off doing live shows. I finally had the opportunity to go through messages we received from listeners via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Apparently back in October of last year, Cindy Milstein, who uh, was on our show, messaged us on Facebook saying, Hello, this is hell, folks. This is hell, folks. I just wanted to pass along a compliment. Someone I don't know told me that they heard my interview conversation with you on my book, Rebellious Morning, and my related book and your podcast transformed how they thought about the world and their life in healthier, more sustainable and healing ways, including to help them continue to organize toward a better world for you. Podcasts matter. Yes, even a show called This Is Hell, which focuses on all the most hellish news all the hell that the media purposely ignores to avoid challenging their corporate masters' religious belief in the greed of journalism. Even a show with that kind of misery-inducing content can matter. Go figure. Arthur messaged us via Facebook, writing, Nice job on the Ron Placone show, Chuck. Heard you mention it had just happened to see it pop up on my phone at work. Ha, 
Jimmy Dora was great a couple weeks ago at Thalia Hall. I hope to stop by this weekend to see you at Lincoln Hall Saturday night on the Michael Brooks show. And if people are interested, you can get tickets by going to LT, no, LH.ST, LH.ST.com, Lincoln Hall dash Shuba's Tavern, LH.ST.com. It's happening on Saturday night, August 24th at 8 p.m. at Lincoln Hall in Chicago. I will be a guest on the Michael Brooks show on stage. Uh, the writer continues, keep up the great work. You've turned me on, me and many others on to some great people. Greg Palace, Thomas Frank et al. Funny, I remember Palace making the prediction that Trumpenstein would win on your show three weeks before the 2016 election. You've doubled down, I heard. And you are right. So everyone understands. I am awful. I just want to point this out. Glad that he pointed out that or he liked my appearance on Rompelcone. Glad that he pointed out that I've doubled down on uh, Palace prediction in 2016 and said that Trump will win in 2020 again. But just so everyone understands, I am awful, awful at picking election winners. But I'm spectacular at picking losers. And I'm certain Biden would lose to Trump easily. In other words, my prediction that Trump will be reelected is kind of a defense mechanism. On one hand, my predictions rarely, if ever, come true, and I'm hoping this Trump winning reelection prediction will also prove to be false. Also, I am psychically and emotionally preparing myself for another term in office for the Trump administration. Yes, I am predicting Trump will win, but I'm also predicting that my prediction's usually wrong. Then Ron Placone, the host of the Ron Placone show that was mentioned in the previous email, emailed me at chuck at thisishell.com, writing, hi, Chuck, Ron Placone here. First off, my audience loved you. You didn't suck at all, dude. Because in a monologue, I told our listeners I thought I sucked. Because I did suck. Also, I wanted to bring a campaign. This is Ron writing again. Also, I wanted to bring a campaign I'm helping out with to your attention. It is to ban facial recognition. I assume this is by software, not just by human beings in general. More information and the website to sign the petition is banfacialrecognition.com. It's really weird that that wasn't owned by somebody already. If you could give this a mention on the show, tweet, anything at all, it'd be infinitely appreciated. Thanks, Ron. Again, that's banfacialrecognition.com. And a lot of listeners have been telling me how much facial recognition software and hardware frightens the hell out of them. So go to ban facial recognition to find out more. Chris writes on Facebook, Hey Chuck, I think Sam Smith of the Progressive Review would make for a good interviewee. He's got a body, good body of work, not the highly academic stuff, but good practical information on politics and organizing. Check them out at samsmithessays.blogspot.com. Alex, I know we had Sam on in the 20th century at some point. Can I hope you can find uh, that interview, and maybe we'll share it as next week's Patreon podcast uh, during when we feature a classic archived interview that listeners can't get anywhere else but when they subscribe to Patreon, at to us, to This Is Hell, on Patreon, at patreon.com slash thisishell. So maybe, Chris, just maybe our featured interview next week on Patreon will be our interview from last century with Sam Smith. Sam Smith? Yes, Sam Smith, right? Sam Smith of the Progressive Review. 
Jeff with one F in Australia also messaged us on Facebook. He writes, I recommend talking with Penn Donovan about her book, School is Stupid, Notes from the Classroom. She blames school for all the ills of society and can explain why. She's also a listener of This Is Hell. Thanks, Jeff, with one F. I forwarded your message to Alex, and we hope to have Penn on the show soon, especially with school starting. What better time to talk about how stupid school is? Brian writes to us on Facebook as well by going to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and clicking on the message box. Brian writes, hey, this is hell. You do such great, consistent, fabulous work, and I've never thanked you good folks. Thanks. There I did it, but it still seems so inadequate. I heard that you are soliciting listener suggestions. I would really, really, really recommend speaking with Charity Ryerson from Corporate Accountability Lab in Chicago, an up-and-coming legal nonprofit that is working on creating legal mechanisms that intervene in global supply chains. Charity, in particular, has a brilliant lawyerly mind and has all sorts of interesting experience as an activist, e.g. went to prison for a School of the Americas protest, and in the world of human rights law. She's a friend of mine, so of course I'm biased, but anyone who has spoken with her figures out quickly that she's a badass. From what I understand, they're trying to raise the profile of Corporate Accountability Lab now, and speaking with you may help with that. Charity should be easy to contact. For more, go to LegalDesign.org or follow them on Twitter at CorpACCT. Lab. That's Corp ACCT Lab. Again, that's on Twitter. Best wishes to you and yours. Thanks, Brian, because we hear from listeners that we focus so often on the problems and not on those who are actively actually creating solutions. So, yes, we'll follow up on your recommendation. That's what listeners have been telling us on Facebook. If you want to send any comments, constructive, destructive, or both guest suggestions or anything at all, you can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on This Is Hell, again, we will be speaking with P.E. Moskowitz about their new book, The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a free gift that you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week goes to the tithing-like religious commitment to This Is Hell that has been displayed by Brett, John, Kilter, Adrienne, and Pete, and by the kindness of repeat supporter Cherish. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly Noam's gone insane. This is hell. There's a case to be made against free speech. That's not to say our next guest is against free speech. They're not. It's just that the alleged free speech crisis is entirely, well, irrelevant. Here to explain, returning to This Is Hell, journalist, and I love this bio, journalist, writer, dog owner, nice person in real life, mean person on Twitter, kombucha maker, like once, queer thing, Jewish thing, P.E. Moskowitz is author of The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. Welcome back to This Is Hell, and that should have been your bio on 
the book jacket for your book because that, that is the best bio I've ever seen on Twitter <laughs> in a very long time. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe in the uh, reprint. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It'll be great. P.E. was on our show back in June 2017 to discuss their book, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood. You can find out more about P.E. at moskowitz.xyz. P.E. co-founded Study Hall, a media collaborative with over 1,500 members, which you can find out about at studyhall.xyz. And you can follow P.E. on Twitter at underscore PEM underscore PEM. That's P-E-M. You write this book is not anti-free speech. It is anti the concept of free speech. It's an important distinction. Everyone should have the right to say what they want. I will not argue otherwise. I am not an authoritarian. It's almost like you are required to make that qualification at the beginning of your book. So to make certain everyone understands you are for everyone having the right to say what they want, how do you distinguish between free speech and the concept of free speech? What would you say to someone who argues there is no difference between free speech and the concept of free speech? Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think it's almost a little sad in a way that I have to make that distinction. I, you know, I wrote the introduction last uh as as most writers do i think and um i just i just felt like i wanted people to to know you know like being against the concept of free speech looking at the current environment of how we talk about free speech and thinking it's ridiculous does not mean you're you're an authoritarian and i think it it kind of shows something about our discourse that if you're critical at all about our our current con conceptualization of free speech and freedom and all the related terms that you automatically get viewed as some kind of fascist or something. Um, so, so it is an important distinction to me. The concept of free speech is just that it's a concept that, you know, as the first amendment says, everyone should have a right to speak and uh, not be oppressed or jailed or whatever for that. Um, but, but uh, it's, it's just not a reality. So I'm for free speech in the sense that I believe everyone should have a right to express themselves and a, and a right to kind of uh, live their their lives and have true expression. But um, we just simply don't live in that world. Um, the simple fact is some people have a lot more free speech than others. And, and that kind of falls on the same lines of race, class and everything else that, you know, the, the more oppressed you are, the poorer you are, everything, the, the less speech you have. You write that you do not argue that the United States should adopt laws banning racist speech like the ones that have proliferated throughout Europe, for example. I think those laws are often counterproductive and end up being used against leftists instead of racists. I won't argue that Nazi speech should be outlawed as it is in Germany. I won't argue that the First Amendment should be reformed nor more firmly upheld. If you are against the concept of free speech, then why are you against the concept of regulating free speech? What's wrong with regulating free speech if you're against the concept of free speech? Because I think the solution to um, increasing free speech is not about the government making one law or one tweak here or uh, more firmly upholding the First Amendment. Um, it's about uh, increasing economic, racial, and gender equality. Um, the, the problem with and, you know, I say this in the book, the the First Amendment and free speech in general, I think, kind of gets used as a propaganda tool to say, well, everyone has the same rights as everyone else. Um, and it gets used to say, you know, like the discourse about, let's say, Charlottesville or, you know, in other times where Nazis march through the street, um, people say, well, everyone has a right to speak. And it kind of lets us 
skirt the real issue, which is why, which is where, why are there Nazis in this country in the first place, right? Why are, why do we live in a white supremacist society? So to me, the answer to free speech is, is much more about economic equality. It's about class-based revolution, frankly, uh, than it is about one law or one limitation um, to a a certain group or another. Um, And the, the other thing is just looking at the reality, you know, maybe if we lived in a, an ideal world where we trusted the government to effectively do anything, (laughs) um, it would be different. But if you look at, for example, the anti-Semitism laws in France, um, where you can get arrested if you, you know, uh, make a anti-Semitic flyer or say something anti-Semitic, it's actually often used against, uh, people who are supporting the BDS movement, um, against Palestinian apartheid. So, if, if France is doing that, I, I don't really have any faith that the United States <laughs> would be much better at it. You know, uh, I got I know I've already I did a ton of research. I have like 50 questions written down for you, but I'm going to mm-hmm. steal a question that you just asked, because I think it's a really important question. And in any of these conversations, discussions I've heard about uh, free speech, it's never been a question that's come up. So, P.E., why do we have Nazis in the United States in the first place? <laughs> well, that's uh, obviously an important question and one that, um, you know, many, many books could be dedicated to. Um, but as, as of now, I think the rise of Nazism is uh, based on two things. One is, you know, kind of the United States was found as an imperial and uh, inherently exploitive country that was based on, you know, racial slavery uh, and in many still in many ways still is that in my opinion so you combine that with a kind of disaffected population of previously middle-class white people who uh, are looking for some kind of identity and with no class-based identity available to them um, because of how we've kind of destroyed the idea of uh, working class solidarity and uh, the actual material realities that come along with that like unions um people are gravitating, white people are gravitating to these things that kind of give their lives some kind of uh, communal meaning. And because, again, because of our history of white supremacy in this country, uh, that happens to be one of the things available to them. Uh, you also write that the First Amendment is nearly irrelevant, except in its power as a propaganda tool. How is mm-hmm. the First Amendment used as a propaganda tool? And if you want to touch on why you believe uh, the First Amendment is nearly irrelevant as well, you can, but you kind of touch on that a little bit earlier. So how is the First Amendment used as a propaganda tool? Because I think that that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, I would like to know in order for my own well-being to understand the messages that I'm seeing in the media better. So how is the First Amendment used as a propaganda tool? Right. I think it's really important to point out the inborn limitations of the First Amendment. We, when we think of the First Amendment, we think that it's almost like the one not controversial. <laughs> it's the one that everyone is supposed to kind of agree with and say, well, you know, even if we disagree deeply with each other in this country, at least we all have the freedom to, to say what we want. But the fact is that's not true now, and it's never been true. If you look back at the, the passing of the First Amendment, literally within the first few years, some of the creators of the amendments in the Constitution, uh, many of the people we think of as the kind of great statesmen of that era, were jailing people for disagreeing with them, were shutting down newspapers that disagreed with them, were trying to pass laws that made it illegal to 
be anti-war um, or to pass out flyers that were pro-labor and those kinds of things. So it, it started out as a kind of false uh, promise in the first place. And let's not forget the fact that, you know, I think most people would agree that voting would be a bedrock of free expression and freedom in general. Um, when the Constitution, when the amendments were passed, uh, only white property only property owning men were allowed to vote. So that was about six percent of the population. Uh, slaves were not allowed to vote. Women were not allowed to vote. Native Americans were not allowed to vote. So um, from its inception, the First Amendment has been very limited. But then if you look at all of U.S. history, there have always been limitations to the First Amendment. Um, the most, the most famous quote about free speech: "You, uh, you know, you can't shell, yell fire in a crowded theater." Um, it was never about yelling fire in a crowded theater. It was about um, the Supreme Court deciding that uh, being anti-war during World War One was the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater. I.e., if you thought that the U.S. was being imperial and you were passing out leaflets that said that we shouldn't get involved in foreign wars, you could be jailed for causing too much of a ruckus. So even our most famous quote about free speech in the First Amendment is actually just about suppressing leftist dissent. Um, and then you look, you know, more recently um, at uh, what's happening, what happened at Standing Rock, what happened at J20, all of these things. There's obviously uh, at least a double standard when it comes to uh, free speech in the First Amendment. Um, and it, it's more than a double standard to me. It's just basically applied um, at will when it makes sense for a propaganda purpose and not applied when it's not convenient for the state. Um, and then the only other thing I'd say to that is there are so many other limitations that we completely take for granted to the First Amendment. If you walk into a Walmart and begin protesting, the Walmart can throw you out. If you walk into someone's house and start protesting, they can shoot you legally in many states, right? So we've already decided that private property uh, supersedes the First Amendment in many cases. Um, so the, the use of the First Amendment as this universalist principle just simply is not factual, in my opinion. Not factual, and it also made me think of yet another separate question from the 50 that I already had written out for you, and that is what <laughs> explains why we have such political debate over the Second Amendment. Uh, there's such a political obsession over the Second Amendment, and not the necessary, the needed discussion and debate over the First Amendment. What does it say maybe about our politics? What does it say about us today when the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, gets so much airtime, and the First Amendment, which is constantly under attack, under far more attack than the Second Amendment is, is ignored? Right. Well, I think this goes back to this very purposeful and kind of ingenious uh, campaign uh, from the far right and, you know, the kind of usual suspects of um, billionaires and millionaires back starting in the in the 70s um, when the Koch brothers and their policy advisors got together. And, uh, the, you know, you can read my book, you can read this elsewhere. This is not a conspiracy theory. I feel like I have to point that out all the time. They got together and they said, how do we push through our very radical anti-working uh, class, uh, you know, pro-inequality ideas. And they knew that saying, uh, you know, vote for deregulation, vote for us to have more money would not work because most people would be against that. And they came up with the system of, and this, this is a direct quote from one of their policy advisors, um, Richard Fink, in the, uh, and he actually wrote this in the 90s, but it 
the strategy dates back to the 70s, where he said, you have to think of professors, um, books, scholarship as the intellectual raw materials to build the society you want. And then you have to think of politicians, think tanks, and all the rest as the producers of the product of those raw materials. And so they started funding all the scholarship, all these centers. Um, you know, you'll look at many universities and they'll have a center for democracy and freedom or, um, you know, the center for free speech and free inquiry or whatever. Um, these are usually things that were funded by the Koch brothers, the John M. Olin Foundation, the DeVos Foundation, i.e. the parents of Betsy DeVos, the current secretary of education, um, that uh, really pushed, one, the idea that market freedom uh, was the same thing as free speech. <laughs> and that, and two, that if you were against any of these, um, in my opinion, really insidious ideas that you were anti-freedom and anti-free speech. So I think we've kind of been scared into thinking that if we criticize people, if we say that the right wing, you know, shouldn't be doing things that will be called, you know, as I said at the beginning, that I've been scared of being called a fascist because I am critical of our discourse over free speech. And that goes back to this very purposeful campaign. If you look at right after they kind of launched this campaign and funded it and uh, created all those schools and gave out grants upon grants upon grants, um, you'll, you'll go back to essentially what happened in the early 1990s and late 80s, which was the, the quote-unquote PC crisis, right, where everyone was saying, oh, everyone's too politically correct these days. Um, there were books like Dinesh, Ernest D'Souza's A Liberal Education and Alan Blom's The Closing of the American Mind uh, that were like, you know, college students just are too sensitive these days. And the mainstream media kind of ate that up. And I think we're still kind of living in the shadow of that um, kind of purposely funded, uh, you know, ultra conservative, ultra rich uh, kind of revolution, their own revolution that that made everyone scared to to push back on them or else we thought we would be um, decreasing freedom in the United States. You write free speech has never really existed because freedom and liberty have never really existed for the vast majority of Americans. Is your argument then not about freedom of speech necessarily as it is about freedom in general? Do you believe you cannot have freedom if you have inequality? Essentially, yes. I mean, it's the it's the it's the difference between positive and uh, negative liberty, um, and other philosophers have written much better about this. But basically, the difference being on paper, you and I and everyone else are free to do the same things versus in reality being free to do the same things. So as we know, people who have to work eighty hours a week to make ends meet, people who face all kinds of oppression, are not in reality free to do the same things. Um, and, you know, in terms of freedom of expression, that works in so many different ways. You can't write a letter to the editor at a paper if you're working 80 hours a week because you're probably too tired. You can't go to your local community board meeting um, if you're scared of being, um, you know, hit by a police officer or jailed for your expression, then you're going to be much less likely to go to a protest. Um, so there are all these ways that inequality um, inhibits freedom, in my opinion. Um, and what I found really interesting in researching the book is that there was actually an acknowledgement of this way back in the 1920s and even earlier than that from the more radical unions like the Wobblies, who um, basically said that freedom of speech doesn't mean anything if it can't translate into what that freedom of speech is pushing for. So to 
the more leftist unions um, back 100 years ago, freedom of speech did not just mean the freedom to say things. It meant the freedom to, uh, you know, foment those things into reality. So that meant that um, it wasn't only about pushing or, uh, you know, handing out pamphlets or speaking about revolution. It was the ability to enact those desires um, upon the country um, that that they wanted. Um, and then, you know, in the kind of turn to um, moderation after the whole suppression from the government from Pro and the McCarthy era and everything like that, we kind of lost that more radical and material version of freedom of speech. You write the U.S. has systematically acted against those values, suppressing the opportunities, speech movements and actions of the masses, especially people of color and anti-capitalists in order to favor the free flow of capital to the owning class. This oppression and suppression have been constant since the founding of this country, and therefore free speech is a hollow signifier pointing to a past that never existed. Has there never been freedom of speech in the United States? Because capitalism, by its very nature, silences dissent as part of its political economic project. Is the problem capitalism undermines freedom of speech? Yeah, exactly. That is, I agree with that. <laughs> um, as you know, as I said, from the founding of uh, the Constitution and the amendments, um, freedom of speech was already being persecuted in so many ways. Um, but yeah, more generally, I mean, you you just can't have freedom of speech if everyone is required to essentially um, work until they die and, uh, you know, work until they can't have liberty in their lives. So, and as I said, all these things, we are, we already take for granted so many limitations on free speech. We, if you say something nasty to your boss, we agree that, you know, it's not a violation of free speech if you're fired. If you, again, go into someone else's home, we, or Walmart or McDonald's, we agree that uh, it's not a violation of the First Amendment if you get shut down uh, from doing that because private property, because the, the class structure of a boss being more powerful than you is already an accepted fact in this country. So it's curious to say the least that there's only a uproar in this country over free speech when um, a Nazi or a far right provocateur speech is being challenged or protested. I think we've really been trained to only think of free speech violations uh, as something that happens to people who are already really powerful, who have much more freedom to speak than most people do. And we've been trained to not think of freedom of speech violations as, you know, the fact that you can't live your life without being uh, kind of uh, in uh, being subservient to your boss and uh, to capitalism. Um, and, you know, the thing I always like to point out, it, it seems so obvious um, when you think about it, but isn't uh, the prison system like millions of people every year being in prison or people being uh, deported or kind of disappeared in immigration centers. Is that not a free speech issue? You know, uh, they, people who are literally not allowed to speak, not allowed to vote, not allowed to have contact with the outside. That seems like a much bigger free speech issue to me than Milo Yiannopoulos being disinvited from a college campus. Yet we never are taught or encouraged to think about those, those, those things as first amendment issues. You mentioned that freedom of speech is irrelevant because historically we've never had freedom of speech from the very beginning of this country. So one of the questions I was going to ask was, Citizen United, the end of free speech. But if we never really had free speech before Citizens United, how did then Citizens United affect 
free speech in this country? Is there is there a kind of zero sum game with free speech between the public and private concerns like corporations? Um, I mean, I think that it, you know we never had free speech, but we've had varying levels of it um, within this country. And Citizens United was the kind of coup de grace or whatever, or the cherry on top of the, that whole plan from the Koch brothers and the DeVos family um, and all their friends um, back in the 70s, which really pushed um, uh, this idea of capital being a form of free speech. So if you look at, um, I forget the, the exact name, but there's a, I think it's the James Madison Center for Free Speech or something like that. It was completely funded by the DeVos family and it, um, it pushed for the idea that uh, spending that capital, that uh, wealth was a form of free speech. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago, people probably thought, oh, well, this is a kind of wonky center that just publishes irrelevant things. But what they were doing was essentially laying uh, the philosophical and scholarship and, uh, you know, academic groundwork uh, for something like Citizens United. Um, and that, that center was then, um, one of uh, the main uh, backers of Citizens United. So as of now, I think we're, I mean, again, we've never had free speech in this country, but I think that we're in a particularly sad moment where we've essentially decided that um, protesting sometimes or oftentimes is not a form of free speech, i.e. you can be arrested if you don't have a permit, but we've decided that money essentially, no matter what, is a form of free speech. So that just goes to show you how skewed our con- our conceptualization of free speech has become. Yeah, and it also reminds me of free speech zones that are at like uh, political conventions, where the only place where you can exercise free speech are within caged areas. And how that has been allowed to continue for the last 25 years, I have no freaking idea. You're right, we argue right. endlessly about whether it is being whether freedom of speech is being trampled on, whether college students hate it, whether the government is adequately upholding it. But we rarely ask what free speech is or how we got to the free speech crisis we supposedly face today. What explains to you why we do not have that conversation? Why don't we have that discussion? What are we trying to avoid? Um, well, yeah, there are a couple of things. One, propaganda works. <laughs> we uh, we uh, have been taught again and again what free speech is and is not and to favor it for the rich and for uh, people who essentially have way more free speech already than many others. Uh, and we've been taught again that things like private property, things like, uh, you know, capitalistic class relations, all of those things trump free speech and make it uh, essentially a moot point. Um so that's one thing is just we've been taught so long this very specific definition of free speech that is pro-capitalist and anti-worker um, and that ignores our actual material history. Um, but the other thing is, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, you look at liberals in The New York Times and other places who I'm sure you've seen all these op-eds over the last several years about how college students are going to make the U.S. the fascist country or, uh, you know, the, the social justice warriors are really anti-free expression, free speech, and all of that, I think it's much easier to kind of be reactionary and and uh, brush off what those college students and those social justice warriors or whatever you want to call them are saying than it is to actually contend with what they're saying. So in my book, I went back to many of the colleges that were at the, centers, uh, were at the center of this free speech 
speech supposed crisis. Um, I went to Middlebury where Charles Murray was disinvited. I went to Evergreen where they had the whole day of absence, day of presence, and asked white people voluntarily to leave campus for a day if they so chose um, to, uh, so that they could have like conversations about race and stuff. Um, and that, you know, completely blew up. I went to all of these campuses where these things were happening. And if you actually listen to what the students are talking about and don't just write op-eds about it in the New York Times, you'll realize they're talking about real and really sticky issues about race and class and gender. They're wondering how universities can become more equitable. They're wondering what the point is of learning the same things that we learned 50 years ago of learning only, you know, uh, the kind of great books of the last uh, 200 years or whatever, and not learning more uh, from more cultures outside of the United States. They're having these really interesting and in my mind, kind of like very intellectual conversations. And I think people don't want to give them uh, the space to actually (laughs) say what they're saying, which is that we need to actually start thinking about these things. It's much easier to just kind of dismiss them and say, oh, well, they're being bratty or too sensitive or whatever. That, you know, uh, you also write that we argue endlessly about whether it is being trampled on, whether college students hate it. But you also call this a free speech crisis we supposedly face today. Why do we say, why do you say supposedly have a free speech crisis? Isn't deplatforming the process of getting speakers uninvited from campus speeches isn't that a crisis in free speech? And if not, why not? I know you just touched on this, but I think it's an important point. Right. No, I don't think that's a crisis of free speech. If you think about um, what colleges are, and I think this is this goes to show how um, successful conservative propaganda has been. Think about what colleges are. Is the admissions process a uh, uh, example of the suppression of free speech if i'm not invited to speak on your podcast or at a college is that a suppression of free speech colleges in particular are some of the most um kind of restricted free speech environments that exist anywhere in this country or elsewhere uh they they have certain curricula they have certain uh professors they hire certain professors to teach certain things but not other things uh they put some, some subjects segregated from other subjects, i.e. math and history are often segregated from each other. Um, so they're already incredibly restrictive environments when it comes to free speech. Um, and again, they are more often choosing who not to invite or who uh, to not have come speak and educate the kids that go there than they're choosing who to invite there. So uh, is deplatforming a, a, a free speech crisis? No, I mean, a whole college, if you think that's a crisis, you think a whole like college in general is a free speech crisis because the point of college is to have this incredibly curated environment of speech and learning and expression. Um, so I think, I think conservatives, um, especially like Miley Yiannopoulos and that crowd, have been incredibly successful as, at kind of trying to uh, um, convince us that this is a free speech issue. But People are not invited to colleges every day. And, you know, if I wasn't invited to Wheaton College uh, in Illinois, which is like a super conservative Christian college, um, is that a free speech violation? No, it's just I don't expect a super conservative audience to want to listen to what I have to say. So um, I I think that it's not a free speech crisis. It's a crisis of these alt-right provocateurs being surprised that people aren't just letting them do whatever they want and claiming free speech as a way to actually elide the issue of why people don't want them to say uh, really heinous things on their campus.
So how much then is the defense or the expression of free speech, how much is that an expression of white privilege and white supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. Um, And I think this goes from a very kind of, I was just talking with someone um, about this, like it goes from a very personal level to a very political level, like, you know, growing up queer and whatever. um, I remember being in rooms where if a, a white cis man didn't feel comfortable, I all of a sudden felt like I had to kind of like make them feel comfortable. And the same uh, and it, the opposite was true for me, where I was just used to my discomfort and I thought it was how the world was. And I think that's kind of true to, for everyone to a certain extent, is we've learned that, you know, white men, who, especially white rich men, have a right to do and say whatever they want uh, at all times. And, you know, there were all these viral stories about these court cases like Brock Turner and all those people who, oh, they had too much privilege to understand the punishment for what they did. Um, Those kinds of things where we just kind of assume that um, the way things are is that, uh, you know, uh, people with the most privilege get to do whatever they want. And it's very challenging, I think, both internally for everyone in this country, um, but then also for everyone they are directly challenging. It's challenging to kind of accept that the the ties are are turning or whatever. Um, And I think to a certain extent, conservatives are right to be scared with what they're seeing on college campuses because students aren't doing that anymore. They're not just saying, well, we have to listen to, we have to think that this person is right. If they're a figure of authority, um, if they come from a place of privilege, they're, they're presenting a different way of learning a different paradigm. And one that I think is really cool, but one that I do think people who think the old way of doing things where you just listen to whatever um, rich white men say <laughs> is uh, good, but you know, they, those people are, you know, rightfully scared. You write that we are told from a very early age that the first amendment is one of the most important things that separates us from most other countries, that it not only separates us, but makes us better, morally superior, and more high-minded than every other nation on Earth, despite our high levels of poverty, infant mortality, and air pollution. It's important that we poke some holes in that theory. How does the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievance. How does that not make the U.S. uniquely better than the rest of the world? Why is the U.S. government not morally superior to all of the governments based on the fact that we have the very first words of our foundational document guaranteeing religious speech, press, assembly, and the ability to seek grievance against government abuse? How does that make us not as unique as we believe it does? Well, because in the very same document was the justification for slavery and not giving women or Native Americans the right to vote. (laughs) So it was a hypocritical and kind of false document to begin with. But then again, it's all about the interpretation. Like if you look at the Second Amendment, you could think that that means that from a leftist perspective, that means that you can have militias so you can overthrow the capitalistic government that we have and create some kind of, you know, leftist, communist, whatever revolution. But the way it's been interpreted and the way it currently stands is it means that everyone has a right to own a semi-automatic weapon and do whatever they want with it without any background checks. So my, I don't have an answer for what the First Amendment should mean, but my, uh, my hope is that people will start thinking of it more like the Second Amendment or more like anything else in this country, influenced by politics, 
and with winners and losers. The Koch brothers, the alt-right, fascists, neo-Nazis are all kind of winners of how we currently define free speech um, in the same way that the NRA is a winner of how we currently define the Second Amendment. Um, and people who want uh, dissent, people who want to uh, challenge or overthrow this current government, people who want more equality in the society are kind of on the losing end of how we define the First Amendment. So it's not that valuing freedom of speech or valuing the first of amend the first amendment makes us any worse than any other country but as of now it's an amendment that has no inherent meaning and that in the way that it's interpreted just kind of um you know reifies every single other problem in the society from from race and inequality to everything else there were reports this week out of Portland, Portland, Oregon, where the Proud Boys had had many, con- the far right uh, fascist Proud Boys organization had uh, confrontational protests and there were counter protests with Antifa members. And there were reports stating that Proud Boys members were saying that the whole point of these confrontational protests was that they are, in fact, trying to, sure, they might, be get la- might get labeled as white domestic terrorist organizations due to the shooting in places like El Paso. Uh, sure, they might get labeled as a domestic white terrorist organization, white nationalist organization, whatever. They don't care because they'll say, they're arguing that if that happens to us, then they'll have to label Antifa as a white terrorist organization, as domestic terrorist organization, as they'll do to the Proud Boys here in the United States. And there's even a theory that that's their whole point of doing these protests, that they're trying to have free speech reined in because the far right fears free speech far more than the left does. Do you think that Mm -hmm. the uh, potential for white domestic terrorist organizations, uh, uh, far-right groups being labeled as white domestic terrorist organizations, do you think that also threatens the ability of free speech being exercised by those on the diametrically opposed end of that political spectrum by the left? Um, I mean, I think in a way... It does, but I think what this gets to is this kind of reliance on uh, kind of uh, universal values that don't don't really actually make any sense in the material reality. Um, And, you know, affirmative action would be a a great example of how this works in a good way where we don't rely on universal values. Affirmative action works because it corrects historical injustices, right? It, It doesn't say we let anyone into college now. It says based on... Is historical injustices that didn't let people into college, such as race uh, and gender, um, that we will now try to correct for those things. So saying that labeling one group violent means that you have to label another group violent, I don't think it has to be that way, but I think that's how we're kind of trained to think in this country, um, where, you know, if you punch a Nazi, then doesn't that give a Nazi the right to punch you? Or if you outlaw Nazism, doesn't that give the government the right to outlaw communism or whatever um that that doesn't it doesn't have to be that way um you, those universalist kind of slogans are are just that they're slogans they're not how things actually have to work you can you can decide as a society that some things are good and other things are bad <laughs> um that being said given the current government we have given um the you know this historical uh, precedents that have been set in terms of these things. Anytime um, the government 
you know, decide something that uh, is limiting for for even the worst people. It ends up being used against leftists, against people of color more. And so I, you know, I really wish that there was a simple answer, like, you know, saying that white supremacy was all of a sudden illegal in this country. But I don't think it would really work that way. I think if you made a law that said, you know, we can now define anyone who's violent as a terrorist organization, that it it essentially would end up being used against leftists in this country. P.E., I was uh, recently on vacation, and one thing I heard consistently on every right-wing AM talk radio show was hosts complaining about being called racist or any action by the right being labeled as racist, claiming that they are unfairly being labeled as racist and everything is unfairly being framed within racism by the left. Is the free speech crisis, the alleged free speech crisis we are facing today at its core, its foundation, a crisis driven by systemic racism, sexism, transphobia, and the denial, like climate change denial, that such Mm -hmm. disasters are taking place. Beyond freedom of speech is the real political debate that is taking place today, whether or not the U.S. has systemic racism, sexism, and transphobia. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the major things. I mean, I always think back to the MLK quote, which I'm about to butcher, but, uh, you know, he said something about, you know, um, one of the biggest problems in the U.S. not being just the far right, but being the the white moderate who rather have respectability and a kind of uh, nice way of things getting done um, than actually have real change in this country. And I think that's that kind of gets to the heart of the current free speech thing, too, where it's, um, you know, fascism might be the, the castle we're trying to invade or whatever, or capitalism might be the the kind of castle we're trying to overthrow, but the moat around it is our current discourse over free speech and respectability and giving everyone uh, the benefit of the doubt and those kinds of things. So um, that, that moat um, of free speech of, uh, you know, letting, you know, let me say what I say, even if you think it's racist and terrible and harms people um, allows people to ignore all these huge, huge issues in our country that are the actual, uh, you know, uh, things that uh, quash freedom for everyone, racism, sexism, transphobia, and all the rest. One last question for you, P.E. We've been yep. speaking with journalist P.E. Moskowitz, author of The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. P.E. was on our show back in June 2017 discuss their book, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood, another fantastic book. You can find out more about P.E., at Moskowitz.xyz and follow P.E. on Twitter at underscore PEM, underscore PEM. That's P-E- underscore P-E-M, underscore P-E-M. As always, our final question for all of our guests, P.E., is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, your book is not a definitive account of free speech, but a necessary intervention prodding us to be more critical of the term and maybe along with it, many of the other lofty concepts we hold near and dear, democracy, freedom, etc. Does freedom of speech make the representative democracy created by the same constitution that gave us that freedom, does it make that representative democracy unsustainable? Does the freedom of speech we have make the contradictions of U.S. democracy vulnerable and inevitably unsustainable? Is the greatest existential threat to the United States, to representative democracy, all the contradictions we have between democracy and capitalism is its greatest threat 
freedom of speech? In a way, yes. I think it depends on how you define freedom of speech. But how I've been liking to define it is that there's no difference between speech and action. You know, there we're constantly litigating this between can you threaten someone? No, but you can be Eminem and make fun of wanting to murder your wife, right? So we're always defining this line between speech and action and what's acceptable and what's not. In my opinion, what's acceptable is what brings us justice, what brings us revolution, what brings us an actual working class democracy in this country. And that means defining freedom of speech in a way that means you can say the things that lead to the overthrow of the U.S. government. So, um, yeah, I think real freedom of speech in that sense, where every person in this country actually has a right to freedom and has a right to speech is inherently in contradiction to our current supposed democracy where we actually don't have very much freedom at all. Truly an honor to have you back on the show. I loved your first book and this book is equally exceptional. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show and everybody should be checking out your work. Thank you so much for being back on This Is Hell. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell during the moment of truth, Jeff wonders if maybe, just maybe, it's time we gave the fascists another chance. And before you start tweeting or posting or sending us emails, we're betting Jeff's being sarcastic. We'll learn how to be an anti-racist. We'll try to figure out why the media has a bias against Bernie Sanders. We'll be told what is actually happening in Brazil that the U.S. media ignores. We'll also have your emails, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell. Thank some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support and get a free This Is Hell gift from us. As well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. It's time for the moment of truth. And Alex, I know you have Jeffy on the line. Maybe it's time to give the fascists another chance. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Everything old is new again, as the saying goes. Whitey is back, have you noticed? Not the word, the guy, Whitey. The guy who went to the moon while Gil Scott Heron's sister Nell done got bit by a rat. Whitey, rapey, assassinate pollute corrupty, flag-wavy, and Nazi. The seven warps. They're all back. It's almost like they never left. Ever since their crushing defeat in World War II, Francisco Franco a notable exception, fascists have been on what the English call the back foot. Governments from 1945 onwards have been dominated by non-fascists and crypto-fascists in numbers far greater than their percentage in the population at large, if recent exercise of the public franchise in the West is any indication. What qualifies non-fascists and crypto-fascists to take such an outsized chunk of the pie of governance? Have you seen how they've mismanaged things so far? The Western democracies today suffer from shaky currencies, 
intercultural strife, municipalities hamstrung by austerity caused by corporate corruption and justified by false shortages, and the icing on the cake, a sure sign of decaying social cohesion and the failure of the ruling class, these nations are all teetering on the brink of fascism. So maybe it's time to give fascism another look. If the best the current non-fascist and crypto-fascist rulers can deliver at the end of three quarters of a century of having it their own way is a collapse into fascism, then why not give fascism a try? Fascism has been in remission for longer than anyone expected. Like a case of shingles, why not just accept it and try to make the best of it? When life gives you shingles or fascism, surely there's lemonade to be manufactured, and that's what the fascists would have done or would have had some prisoners do for them, fascism clearly has some very attractive qualities. Rigid, brutally enforced order, for one. It kept the trains running on time, the streets clean when they weren't coursing with blood or littered with broken glass, and the working class in an appropriately terrorized or eager-to-please condition. Fear was the great motivating force. You could always tell where you were in the social order by who it was you were afraid of. The ambitious aspired to rise from fearing the bureaucrat immediately above them to being intimidated only by the cream of the crop. On the bottom rungs, you were simply afraid of suffering the fate of those pushed completely outside the social order, removal, mass incarceration, forced labor, and extermination. Being a worker under fascism was not unlike it is today. We could call the condition precarity. But more than a precarious working class terrorized into obedience, the fascists brought clarity. A man was a man, a woman was a woman, and everyone else was erased. Even a hint of gender fluidity marked a person for destruction. Gender fluid wasn't even a term at this time, but if it had been, it would have meant semen, if anything. But the fascists didn't talk about secretions. They spent most of their time sublimating their ferocious heterosexuality and their repressed homosexuality, as well as other more esoteric urges, into athletic contests, military parades, and corporal punishment. By the mid-1930s, it was clear that the horrors of the Great War, which the fascists considered so great that they wanted another one, had left artists and writers in a state of deranged modernism. The fascists preferred tidy modernism, art deco eagles, leather boots, bundled sticks, lightning bolts, and stylized skulls, much of which was adopted decades later by bondage and fetishist culture, fortified as it was with subliminal sexuality that we would now consider ridiculously overt. And yet somehow, Fascists considered it all so clear and orderly. It's that kind of triumph of the will, the will to turn chaos into order simply through coerced belief, to turn shingles into lemonade through angry, violently enforced lies that the fascists could bring to us once more. Can fascism tackle global warming? That depends. Is the American public ready for green fascism, like the Planetary Management Authority science historian James Burke predicted in his overly optimistic two-part speculative mockumentary After the Warming from 1989, in which a benevolent dictatorship forces humanity to adopt sustainable living choices? Or can the regular white fascism do the job? Can plain old run-of-the-mill white fascism lie climate chaos away? 
It's trying to lie racism away. How's that going? The answer you get depends on who you ask. If you ask a racist, there is no racism. Ask a polluter, there's no pollution. That's the fascist way to fix things. Another fascist solution to racism, in addition to lying about it, is to exterminate the other races. There are advantages to this, except to the races in question. Other races are the real racists. Just ask a racist. And extermination opens up job opportunities. There are the jobs of leading people to extermination, carrying out the exterminations, and of course, disposing of the bodies. But in the aftermath, so many millions will have been killed, presumably, that housing will be abundant and jobs will be vacant for the taking. Ask the non-Jews playing klezmer music in Germany. Somebody's got to do it. The point is, mass murder and war involving armies of millions, that's like economic rocket fuel, by which understanding fascism is nothing if not a job creator, like the Great Plague. Talk about an economy firing on all cylinders. We are plagued by artificial shortages, engineered by capitalists to keep commodities profitable, including arms, never mind the resultant starving and bloodshed, but one thing you can't fake a shortage of is alive people. Too few workers to exploit is the only pressure to raise wages to which capitalism responds. Therefore, unchecked, bellicose, nationalistic fascism is sure to work in the workers' favor, the workers lucky enough to survive, that is. In summation, we have a choice to make. We can choose to choose fascism, or we can choose to let it happen to us. Let me put it this way. As a free people living in the freest nation on earth, albeit with the largest incarcerated population, though admittedly that's not really a gauge of anything besides how many people we have locked up, don't we owe it to ourselves and our posterity to take something like control over our inevitable future? I mean, what good is all this freedom if we can't use it to freely choose inevitable tyranny? This has been the moment of truth. A good day. I'm glad that you are so, so inter interested in us exercising our freedoms. I'm, I think that's very... Freedom of speech was that that, that earlier guy was talking about. Very and the fascism love fascists love freedom of speech. I mean, they're they're banging away at that freedom of speech drum like it's you know time for a big pie fight <laughs> or milkshake fight. There you go. All right, Jeffy. Until yeah. next week, my friend. All right. Well, like, oh, you thought I was going to be sarcastic, didn't you? <laughs> I had to say All something. Right, Dude, I didn't want to get those emails. I did not want to get those emails from people who didn't hear something and then writing a thousand words about something they didn't hear. So Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Stay beautiful. Okay. You too, Thank gorgeous. You. Staring I into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. You are listening to the broadcast premiere of an all-new episode of This Is Hell that was pre-recorded during the week in our new studios provided by those of you who supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And those of you who are Patreon subscribers of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Without that support, we would not have been able to give you any new content this week because tonight, Saturday, August 24th at 8 p.m., I will be appearing on stage on the Michael Brooks Show at... Lincoln Hall here in Chicago. You can still get tickets at lh-st.com. So thanks to all of your support. I will not be dog-tired tonight, and there's the actual potential for me to be, get this, 
engaging on stage. I know. For those of you who have seen me MC the anniversary parties, it's pretty surprising. Thanks again for all your support. Enjoy the rest of this morning's show, and I hope to see you tonight at the Michael Brooks Show, tomorrow during This Is Art Gallery Hours, beginning at 2 p.m., next Sunday, September 1st, during the closing party for This Is Art at Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The closing party goes from 2 to 7. See you then. This is not the media. This is hell. And so far on this week's show, we've talked to environmental historian Bathsheba DeMuth about her new book, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait. Bathsheba explained to us how both U.S. capitalism and Soviet socialism failed in the Arctic because both systems are creations from different biological, ecological, geographical, agricultural, and geological regions of the world. Those systems are completely incompatible with the precarious life on the Arctic. Then we spoke with journalist P.E. Moskowitz, author of The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. P.E. described how the First Amendment and its freedom of speech is irrelevant, seeing as how our Constitution is a racist, white supremacist document, which unequally distributes power between the wealthy and the rest of us. I also speculated on the idea that the Proud Boys and fascist organizations are simply provoking Antifa and other anti-fascist organizations into, well, criminalizing freedom of speech, criminalizing not only the far right and their white nationalist domestic terrorist groups, but to be objective, that will lead to Antifa being also turned into a terrorist group and thus eliminating more and more freedom of speech. And we got an early dose of the moment of truth when Jeff Dorchin actually argued that it's time we give fascism another chance, to which I thought Jeff was being sarcastic, but on hearing what Jeff had to say, I'm now going with sardonic. Coming up on this week's This Is How, we'll learn how to be an anti-fascist, and to be clear, we are not going to learn how to not be fascist. But we will learn how to be anti-racist, and there's a huge difference. We'll try to figure out why the media has a bias against Bernie Sanders, and it's not only the liberal New York Times that hates Bernie, but it's also the liberal MSNBC. I'm starting to think liberal institutions are having a real problem with Bernie. Too bad for the Democratic Party, as their rank and file is in recent polling, shows that uh, Sanders' numbers are surging. Not that you will hear that in the establishment corporate media. And we'll end this week's show by telling you what is actually happening in Brazil that the U.S. media ignores. And what they've been ignoring of late is the massive street protests against President Jair Bolsonaro, as well as the reasons why the Amazon forest is on fire. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support, as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. Alex, so what have you been up to on social media, sir? Uh, for the past three weeks? Uh, yes, well, sir. Uh, the biggest hits that we posted uh, was a Frederick De Boer essay. De Boer? De Bauer? Mm. I don't know how to pronounce that guy's name. De Boer. Okay, I've been reading his stuff for a really long time uh, called We're Not Fixing Climate Change. 
Uh, it is a super bummer. People really liked it a lot. Uh, I recommend that one a lot. That's at his site, frederickdeboer.com. I know that we have had him on in the Has past. Has he been on? Yeah, you should look through the archives and see if we can find it anywhere in there for Patreon next week. Yeah, I think I looked one. So you're sure you had him on I'm before? I'm pretty sure. And Sam Smith was the other person that Yeah, was that's another guy to look at. Uh, also, somebody I don't think we've had on yet, but I'd like to, is uh, there's a new site called cosmonaut.blog that's been putting out really, really great writing recently. And there was a piece they uh, posted called Neither Intersectionality Nor Economism for a Genuine Class Politics. Uh, those are really sort of great piece that sort of dodges the uh, class versus racial identity divide that people get into uh, fights over for every year until we die. And in Listener Appreciation Month during July, we did have people suggest Cosmonaut articles. So, yeah, we yeah, should Yeah, I read them, them every day. I actually shared something today that was really great from them about um, ICE and Capital that was really great. Uh, and then finally, uh, one thing that got a ton of clicks uh, was a fairness and accuracy rewarding piece by Katie Halper that we're going to be talking about today all about uh, Sydney Ember, who is uh, the Bernie journalist. We'll hear more about that earlier. Uh, I actually really like this piece because... I first stumbled upon a hit piece that she wrote on Bernie like a month ago, and all I did is just cuss at her on Twitter. So I was glad that we could talk to someone who has their uh, stuff together and actually did some reporting about it. Yeah, I think that was actually, I think it was earlier. Her article came out in June, but I think that article that, that you're referring to may have come out as early as April or May. But yeah, everybody was aghast when that came out. Yeah, it was uh, real scummy. And then I also use that uh, opportunity of defending Bernie to then ask him to join our Patreon at the $4 a month level. Still hasn't done it. However, my wife, who thinks that's a bad shtick and is getting mad about me doing this, Mm -hmm. always asking Bernie for money, gave money to Bernie Sanders. So (laughs) I've been been cucked. You know, I am so glad that Bernie Sanders hasn't done a certain thing that I think will completely sabotage his campaign, and that's show up at a debate wearing a jacket wearing a suit jacket that has patches on the elbows i think that would basically be the end of bernie sanders it's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at chuck at this is hell.com tom always sends great guest suggestions this time he writes hi chuck and alex i don't know if you have seen any recent books or articles but i think aijaz ahmed a-i-j-a-z ahmed would make a very compelling interview for This Is Hell. Tom then sends a link to a conversation with Aijaz Ahmad at the uh, Hindu.com titled The State is Taken Over from Within. The Hindu describes the interview like this. Aijaz Ahmad believes that there is a fundamental contradiction between democracy and liberalism, but says that no such contradiction obtains between the rule of the far right and the liberal institution form of the state. Liberalism undermines democracy and strengthens the far right. That is why forces of the far right in a whole range of countries, the U.S., Israel, Turkey, India, and so on, are able to rule through liberal institutions. See, I told you Tom always sends great guest suggestions. And we're on it, Tom. Aijaz Ahmad sounds absolutely fantastic, trying to point out the fact that the only reason that fascism is on the rise is because of the failures of liberalism. Is definitely something we want to do here on the show if we haven't already done it in the past. Some guy named John Mertz emailed me to say, Hi guys, it'd be good to get David Wallace Wells on your program. His book, The Uninhabitable Earth, is ultra scary, and I think his thoughts on the political and economic landscapes touches on topics few are talking about. Well, although I do not know any John Mertz, and our family name is incredibly common, you're right, John Mertz. It would be good to get David Wallace Wells on our show. In fact, I think we've interviewed his brother, Ben, but David did not respond to our request. So, John Mertz, I have an idea. You go bug him and tell him to get on This Is Hell. We got an email 
requesting one of our past interviews to be played elsewhere. And if you ever have, uh, if ever want to play one of our interviews elsewhere, all you have to do is email me, Chuck at thisishell.com. Christina writes, Hi, Chuck. I host a bi-weekly one-hour radio show about sustainability in the Catskills Mountains on WIOX Radio, which is a wonderfully vibrant community radio station. Man, I want to be on this radio station. That sounds great. Catskills Mountains on WIOX Radio. I would like to replay your interview with Jem Bendel that you had on episode 1052, titled Too Late. Just listen to it. Terrific interview. And I think it's something people need to hear. Do I have your permission? To replay the episode, thank you, Christina, coordinator of Transition Cat Skills. We told Christina, of course, you can re-air our interview with Jem, where Jem says that we are on the verge of societal collapse within a decade or two due to human-caused climate change. And if anyone listening wants to re-air any of our interviews from ever, go ahead, knock yourself out. But ask first, like Christina politely did, so we can promote the fact that somebody else is playing our show on the air somewhere else. Sarah actually likes something I said during a monologue last month, which is always surprising. Sarah writes, Hi Chuck, I'm a devotee of your show and Patreon subscriber. In relation to your rant on selling out, I feel the same way. Have you read The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen? I haven't decided to say if I should say leisure or leisure yet, so... No. I am finally reading it now and keep marveling at how on target his theories are for the most part. And it was written in 1899. I don't know if there's an expert on this book, but if there is, if there were, I would recommend him or her for your show. Thorsten Veblen died in 1929, so he is unavailable for interviews. Best Sarah. Sarah, read Nature's Metropolis, a history of Chicago. It opens with Veblen's theories on urban plannings. That is, if I remember it right, I copy the book is long gone, having disappeared during a party at my house. All right, let me put these aside. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll learn how to be an anti-racist. We'll try to figure out why the media has a bias against Bernie Sanders. We'll be told what is actually happening in Brazil that the U.S. media completely ignores. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for our subscribers of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell live from the United States where property has more rights than people. This is hell I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. So, you don't want to be racist anymore. Yeah, me neither. But that's impossible. However, while it is impossible to not be racist, it is possible to be anti-racist. Here to explain and returning to This Is Hell, historian Ibram X. Kendi is author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ibram. Oh, it's great to be back on the show. It's always great to have you on the show. Ibram was on back in July 2016 to discuss his then recently published book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which not only won a National Book Award for nonfiction, but was also named as one of the best books featured in 2016 here on This Is Hell. And I'm sorry I didn't send you an award for that, Ibram. I apologize, and we'll make sure (laughs) we do that next time. (laughs) 
You can find out more about Ebram at ebramxkendi.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Ebram. You write about, as an 18-year-old, being in the final round of the Prince William County Martin Luther King Jr. oratorical contest and how you didn't show up with a white collar under a dark suit and matching dark tie like most of my competitors. I sported a racy golden brown blazer with a slick black shirt and bright color streak tie underneath the hem of my baggy black slacks crested over my creamy boots. I'd already failed the test of respectability before I opened my mouth. The test of respectability. How much is respectability steeped in racism? Well, I think it's it's one of the sort of main racist sort of strategies to somehow undermine racism itself. And and what I'm talking about is uh, it goes all the way back to the abolitionist era in which white abolitionists were were telling black people that if you only act in a respectable manner, then you can then persuade away the racist ideas of, of, of white people, ideas which are substantiating slavery. So in other words, it's on you to convince white people that you are worthy of freedom by acting in a in a respectable manner, meaning it was this idea that somehow black people were responsible for white people's racist ideas and to suggest that black people are responsible for anyone's racist ideas is actually a racist idea in and of itself. That reminds me of uh, somebody, I was talking to somebody, it might have been in a meet and greet, I'm not too sure, and they were telling me how, did you know that right now they're trying to say that civility is racist? And so I looked it up. I didn't know what the hell this person was talking about. And apparently it's a big thing on like 4chan or 8chan or wherever they're talking now, iFunny, whatever, iJoking, whatever it's called. And they, uh, they were saying that, uh, and I looked it up and it found out that there was this paper by Northern Iowa University professors who were discussing the idea that civility was like respectability steeped in racism. What do we miss in understanding what civility or respectability is when we don't understand the racist connotation within which those things were created and institutionalized within our culture? Precisely. So the whole idea about civilization or civility was essentially words to describe the cultures and the way of life of, 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 of white people. And it was to essentially create this idea of, of civilized Europe in contrast to barbaric Africa. And the idea of civilization in and of itself means that, means that there is a such thing as civilization, means other people are not civilized. It, it fundamentally creates this sort of hierarchy, which is why, like, in, in How to Be an Anti-Racist, I talk about the term civilization as being a central term in cultural sort of racism. So, um, sorry, I missed my, I lost my button there for a second. I'm getting used to our new <laughs> studios. Get, just bear with me. Uh, you write, I thought I was stupid, too dumb for college when you were in high school. Or, of course, intelligence is subjective as beauty, but I, I kept using objective standards like test scores and report cards to judge myself. No wonder I sent out only two college applications, one to Hampton and the other to the institution I ended up attending, Florida A&M University. Fewer applications meant less rejection, and I fully expected those two historically black universities to reject me. How much is life as a black high school student or a black teenager or somebody who is black youth, how much is that time spent uh, trying to not be rejected? How much is a fear of rejection instilled in black life? 
Well, I think obviously if you're if you're black in this society and you're constantly told you are you are nothing, you're constantly told people like you are lazy, people like you are dangerous, people like you are hypersexual. It's it, it's it's hard for some black people not to believe those ideas on some level. And I grew up as a black teenager in the 1990s. And if there was ever a, a decade in American history where people were condemning black youth and all the things wrong with black youth, it was the 1990s. I'm sure you remember that period. That was the, the decade in which black youth were apparently super predators. That's the decade in which apparently young black Girls were just having all of these babies because apparently they wanted to get more welfare. That was the decade in which black youth apparently didn't value education. There were all of these ideas floating around among self-identified liberals and conservatives and even people who were black and, of course, who people who were white that were saying the problem of America right now is black youth. How much do you think that that kind of analysis was due to the, I don't want to say advent because it started more in the late 1970s, was due to neoliberalism because neoliberalism uh, focuses on the ju- uh, the actions of the individual rather than any, any time of systemic analysis. Is this something that is, and I know it's not, but I just want you to clear this up, uh, is this something that is new during neoliberalism, when there had when there was this increase in this idea of, like you said, uh, black youth being super predators. Well, I think what was new was the way it, was the way in which the problem, the black problem, was framed, and and so obviously, you know, as you stated, sort of this this notion of the individual being able to determine his or her own sort of trajectory through sort of this neoliberal advance in the 80s and 90s. And the way that operated as related to race was it was to say, stop black people talking about this racism stuff. What you need to do is take personal responsibility. Remember that term? (laughs) That's what apparently black people were not taking personal responsibility because apparently we were too much on welfare. Apparently we were complaining about racial profiling instead of, I'm sorry, we were complaining about (laughs) Uh, racial profiling instead of black-on-black crime, and we need to take responsibility for our own sort of negative and inferior actions, which in fact has caused the racial inequities. In other words, the reason why racial inequities were existing was because there was something wrong with black people and not these systems and structures, more specifically racist policies that were ensnaring them. You write about when in high school, maybe if I'd read history then, I'd have learned about the historical significance of the new North Virginia town my family had moved to from New York City in 1987. I would have learned about all those Confederate memorials surrounding me in Manassas, Virginia, like Robert E. Lee's Dead Army. I would have learned why so many tourists trekked to Manassas uh, National Battlefield Park to relive the glory of the Confederate victories at the battles of Bull Run during the Civil War. It was there that General Thomas J. Jackson acquired his name Stonewall for his stubborn defense of the Confederacy. Northern Virginians kept the Stonewall intact after all these years. Did anyone notice the irony? that at this Martin Luther King Jr. oratorical contest, my free black life represented Stonewall Jackson High School. Are you ever surprised by the blatant racism that is displayed in the United States? And more so, are you ever surprised that people do not notice these blatant examples, or worse, that they just 
don't care. I think I was I was much more surprised before I really began an intensive study of of racist ideas, and and I, I began to see through that study that essentially racist ideas cause people to not see racist policies and power, and certainly their own racist ideas. In other words, if you have a racial inequity, like for instance, black people are about 40% of the incarcerated population in this country, even though we represent about 13% of the national population. And if you believe that black people are by nature or by their culture more dangerous and more criminal-like and more violent, then you're going to look at this overrepresentation of black people in, the, the, in, 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 in jails and prisons and see that as normal. Your racist ideas cause you to see that as normal. And therefore, you, it, racist ideas cause people to literally live an alternative reality, an alternative reality where, where they're struggling economically, not because of the policies of the very people they're voting for, who are, but because of Latinx immigrants, who actually in states, in places where you have higher levels of, or more immigration, that's actually going to increase wages and jobs. <laughs> but people are just imagining, right? So people, racist ideas compel people to live in an alternative reality where racism does no, no longer exist in the United States. How sustainable, though, is that, is that other reality? I, I, I don't understand how that reality can continue for so long, how that reality can sustain any kind of self-reexamination. So how sustainable is that? I, I, I don't think it's sustainable for the individual, obviously. It, it literally harms people. I mean, for instance, right now, you know, we've been engaged somewhat this summer in a, in a debate over guns and, and, and whether assault rifles should be banned, whether there should be universal background checks, whether we should essentially provide more gun safety laws. And you have, for instance, young white men who are opposed to gun restrictions on the idea that they need guns to protect themselves from Latinx invaders, black criminals, and Muslim terrorists. And then in those states where you have lax gun laws, there's an epidemic of young, or I should say white male suicides. So they're essentially supporting policies that are actually leading to the death of people like them because of their racist ideas, because they see these people of color as the problem that they need to protect themselves from, and then they end up killing themselves with their own gun. I mean, it is not sustainable, and it literally is harming people um, as a result. You write of being in the oratorical competition. If I came out of the experience dripping with confidence for college, then I'd entered from a high school drought. Even now, I wonder if it was my poor sense of self that first generated my poor sense of my people. Or was it my poor sense of my people that inflamed a poor sense of myself? Does white racism against people of color lead to people of color having a poor sense of self? What can a poor sense of self cause within the person who has that poor sense? Well, yeah, I mean, if you, for instance, are, you know, if, if white Americans are, are, are constantly mass producing and, and, and circulating and mainstreaming ideas that there's something wrong with black people, 
it is very, very difficult for black people to never on any level consume and believe those ideas. And clearly, if, if, if you're a black person and you, you consume those ideas, if you believe that there's something wrong with black people, it's hard for you to not look in the mirror and think there's something wrong with yourself because, of course, you're black. And so that's why actually, and then that leads to another form of harm, right? And that's why I talk about actually internalized racism as the real black on black crime. Yeah, and I think that's a, a fascinating concept. And I want to get to that in a second. But you also write that racist ideas make people of color think less of themselves, as you were saying, which makes them more vulnerable to racist ideas. Racist ideas make white people think more of themselves, which further attracts them to racist ideas. So this made me think, okay, why are people of color vulnerable to racist ideas? Because on vacation last week, I listened late at night to right-wing AM talk show hosts from all over the country uh, who are seemingly offended by claims that they are racist. And I'm wondering if people of color are vulnerable to racist ideas in the same way that those on the right are vulnerable, susceptible to harm from the idea that they are racist. So why are people of color susceptible to racist ideas? And is that related to, in any way, why white people are so vulnerable, such snowflakes, when it comes to charges that their actions, intended or not, are racist? Are those two things somehow linked or, or connected? Yes, and I think the way they're connected is that I think, you first of all, you have white people who commonly say, I'm not racist, no matter what ideas they believe and express, no matter what policies they support, no matter what politicians and, and powerful figures they support. When charged with being racist, they say, I'm not racist, which then, if you are if you are in complete denial that you are racist, then essentially you're going to continue to consume those ideas completely unobstructed. And you compare that to people of color. People of color say, I can't be racist. And so when you believe, again, that you can't be racist, then you're also going to open yourself up to the consumptions of ideas that there's something wrong with particular people, you know, racial groups, you're also going to make yourself susceptible to supporting policies and politicians who may actually be supporting, who may actually be supporting racist policies that breeds racial inequity. And so I think what an anti-racist says is an anti-racist actually is not in denial. An anti-racist recognizes that we're growing up and in many ways being trained to be racist. And, and the first step in, in, in being anti-racist is acknowledging that and confessing that and, and constantly being on alert to ensure that we're not consuming and expressing ideas that there's something wrong with a particular racial group. You write, I thought I was a subpar student and was bombarded by messages from black people, white people, the media that told me that the reason was rooted in my race, which made me more discouraged and less motivated as a student, which only further reinforced for me the racist idea that black people just weren't very studious, which made me feel even more despair or indifference. And on it went. 
So during the 2008 presidential campaign, then-candidate Barack Obama gave a speech on education where he lamented that, quote, we do not have parents who are willing to turn off the TV once in a while and put away the video games and read to their child. Responsibility for our children's education has to start at home. We have to set high standards for them and spend time with them and love them. We have to hold ourselves accountable. Obama also said during the speech that good education begins with the understanding that from the moment our children step into a classroom, the single most important factor in determining their achievement is not the color of their skin or where they come from. It's not who their parents are or how much money they have. It's who their teacher is. In your opinion, how fair is it to parents and teachers to hold them most accountable for children's education outcomes? Are the challenges of our education system due to poor parenting and poor teaching, or is it more so the reasons Obama dismissed the color of the student's skin, where they come from, and how much money they have? So, is, is it the case that you have black individuals who could be turning off the TV and being encouraging their kids um, to read more or to be more studious without question? But there are white people who could be turning off the TV uh, and there are white parents who could be encouraging their kids to be more studious, too. And, and so to answer your question, I don't necessarily see anything wrong with any of the with black parents and, or even white parents. But there are all of these disparities between the racial groups in education. And so either there's something wrong with the kids and then we then say, okay, there's something wrong with the kids because there's something wrong with the parents and the teachers, or there's something, there's, a, there's a, another problem going on. And I would argue the problem is we have a massively unequal educational system and in which you have, I think the Washington Post recently came out with a, a reported on a study in which you had hundreds of millions of dollars worth in resources disparity between, for instance, black and white schools. And, and so obviously if white schools are, are more heavily resourced than, than black schools, then that's going to create an opportunity gap. You know, obviously if there's an epidemic of black children being suspended and expelled because they're viewed by their teachers, particularly white teachers, as problem children in ways that they're not viewing white children who are acting the same way as problem children, clearly that's a problem too. And so they're leaving school and not being able to learn because of the color of their skin. So I actually think the problem are, are, are the racist ideas that are too prevalent, as well as these policies that lead to all of these resource gaps uh, between schools. We are speaking with historian Ibram X. Kendi. He is author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, and if you are enjoying what Ibram is saying, the truth that he is laying down, he will be making an appearance here in the Chicago area on How to Be an Anti-Racist Friday, September 6th at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. Ibram will be interviewed by Marcus Campbell, the assistant superintendent and principal at ETHS. Find out more about this event by going to 
familyactionnetwork.net. You were talking about the inability for us to admit to our racism. Uh, and so many people believe that they are not racist when that's just not the case. You write denial is the heartbeat of racism, beating across uh, ideologies, races and nations. It is beating within us. Many of us who strongly call out Trump's racist ideas will strongly deny our own. How often do we become in reflexively defensive when someone calls something we've done or said racist? Now, years ago, I met this really, really pompous communist who was incredibly condescending and came off as very elitist. I hated everything this guy said. Then one evening, while sitting around with a bunch of liberal college kids, he said something very profound. One of the college students said something about how awful racists are, and he said, "We're the communists said, we're all racists. The room exploded with anger, all these white people being very upset at the thought. And my girlfriend at the time asked what I thought. As the second least popular person in the room, I agreed with the commie and added that the only way you can overcome racism is to admit that you are a racist. Not that you can overcome that racism ever, but you can at least have the goal of always doing everything you can to overcome that inability to ever truly overcome racism. So why do you think it is so difficult to admit that you have racist tendencies or that you're a racist? I think because how people have been led to define racism, or I should say racist, and so people believe that racist is literally like a tattoo. So, you know, once they admit to being racist, somebody's going to tattoo the R word uh, on their forehead and they'll be a racist for the rest of their life. And I say the R word because people believe that it's literally you attacking them, that it's a racial slur. People believe that it's a fixed identity. Uh, people believe that it is a bad person. Um, an evil person, a person who gets assault rifles and, and kills people, um, a person who joins the Ku Klux Klan. Um, these are the, this is how people define a racist. And I think, and it's also a pejorative. I, I think what people don't realize, liberals in particular and progressives who, who refuse to admit their, their racism, is that that type of mentality that uh, when we call somebody a racist, you're attacking them, that type of mentality was actually spread by white supremacists who they claim to oppose. It's white supremacists who've been saying for decades that white people, when they call you racist, they're attacking you. That has been part of their mantra, their organizing principles. And of course, as we've seen with the current president, white nationalism and supremacy is pretty much mainstream. And, and so that idea is also mainstream. But, but racist is a descriptive term. It describes what a person is saying or doing in the moment. And so if a person is saying there's something wrong with black people, they're being a racist. If in the next moment they're saying, you know what, the racial groups are equal, they're being an anti-racist. And so people can change. And it's not a fixed category. It's not a slur. It describes what a person is doing. And we have the capacity to admit what we're doing and strive to be anti-racist. So let me ask you a question then. Uh, what's the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist? Can I be racist that is still affected by the racist institutions of capitalism and our government? and still be anti-racist? Can I be racist and anti-racist at the same time? So typically, I think 
Well, let me ask, answer your first question first. So in terms of not racist, that, that term comes from, of course, you know, the, the saying, I'm not racist. And people typically say, I'm not racist when what? Charged with being racist. And so it's essentially a defensive term of denial. That's all the meaning that that term not racist has ever had. While anti-racist actually has a meaning. It's someone who is expressing an anti-racist idea or, or supporting anti-racist policies, while somebody who is racist is someone who's expressing a racist idea or, or, or supporting a, a racist policy. And so typically people, I suspect most Americans hold both racist and anti-racist ideas. So depending on the issue, they'll, you know, and, and, and the, 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 the topic, in other words, when it comes to health care, they express notions of, of, of they, they, they're anti-racist. When it comes to criminal justice, they're racist. When it comes to education, they're anti-racist, depending on the racial group. If we're talking about uh, black people, they're racist. If we're talking about Asian people, they're anti-racist. And so I think that that's actually, so people are deeply complex in that way. And so when they're saying something that is racist, they're being racist. And, and when they're saying something that's anti-racist or, or supporting anti-racist policies, they're being anti-racist. So to answer your question, I, I, just say, I would say yes and no. In other words, I don't define racist or anti-racist as like a category of being as much as based on what they're doing in the moment. And people typically shift back and forth between racist and anti-racist. So is it a constant struggle then to be anti-racist, especially considering the fact that we live in such a racist uh, United States of America? Oh, without question. I mean, it, it is easy to be racist in America. It is not easy to be anti-racist in America. We're, we're taught in America to when we see racial inequity, to see what's wrong with a particular racial group. We're, we're taught that the problem is people, not policy and power. We're, 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 we're taught when we see difference to basically put that in a hierarchy, not sort of see difference and just be and just see difference. In other words, level it um, with, with, with our own sensibilities. And, you know, I, I, and so I think in many ways we're trained to be racist. Racist ideas are America's common sense. Racist policies filter through nearly every institution, which is why we have so racial, so many racial inequities. And so it is literally going against the grain to be anti-racist. But at the same time, when we are being anti-racist, we're typically less likely to be manipulated by people in power. We're typically more likely to focus on the roots of actual racial problems. And we're more likely to essentially be able to be a part of this force that will essentially allow America to hopefully one day survive racism. Man, this is why I love having you as a guest on our show, Ibram. Thank you so much for being back on. You write, racist is not, as neo-Nazi Richard Spencer argues, a pejorative. It is not the worst word in the English language. It is not the equivalent of a slur. It is descriptive, and the only way to undo racism is to consistently identify and describe it and then dismantle it. Do anti-racists, do those who oppose racism in any way, do they need to not use racist as a slur? Can racist be used not as a slur, but a descriptive term given today's political environment and rhetoric? Yeah, so when I call someone a racist, I am not attacking their, who they are as a person. 
I'm, not, I'm essentially describing what they just said and therefore who they are being in that moment. I'm not essentially saying they're a bad person. I'm saying what they said or what they did was bad. And I'm hoping for them to accept that, to recognize that, so that they can stop saying that or doing that and change. That is what we do when we describe, particularly when we describe in that type of way. It's an urging for another human being to recognize what they're doing wrong so they can do right. Do those on the left who call President Trump racist as a slur, do you think that undermines anti-racism? I think if they're calling Trump a racist as a slur, in other words, they just believe that that racist is in his bones or in his heart or in his soul. And he is, and if they're understanding it in that way, then yes, because they, of course, that is going to make them less likely to turn around and look at their own racism in the mirror. Does calling anybody then a racist, does that undermine our ability to see racism as a more systemic and institutionalized problem? Does blaming an individual for being racist, does that obfuscate the larger endemic problems that we face that cause racism within our country every day? I actually do not think it does, because I think, I think in order for us as individuals to recognize those structural and systemic problems, we have to recognize what's preventing us from recognizing those structural and systemic problems. And, and typically, it is our own racism. And, and, and so, and, and so I, I think, and so to be anti-racist is to ultimately recognize that there's nothing wrong with the people. So they keep power, keep saying, there's nothing wrong with us and there's everything wrong with y'all people, y'all poor people, y'all black people, y'all workers, y'all are what's the problem. Y'all are what's causing these issues, not us. And bigotry against the poor, against workers, against black people is what causes people to believe that, to believe there's something wrong with them and to hold up power high. And so unless we get past that, unless we get past our own individual ideas which have been fed to us, we're not going to be able to see those structural and systemic problems, and we're not going to be able to be a part of the force that is challenging. The 20th century writer Thomas Mann said, politics is everything, and feminist groups like the Combahee River Collective, uh, which has been credited with uh, coining the term identity politics, forwarded the idea that everything in life was imbued with the political. This is a concept that many on the right disagree with, saying things like take politics out of sports when players kneel during the national anthem but not noticing the political and standing for the national anthem or playing the national anthem before every game or the Air Force flyovers that are clearly pro-war political propaganda. So like politics... Is racism in everything? Is it everything and in everything? So I would say it is in everything where we have racial inequities. And, and I don't want to sort of make it into everything because, you know, there are certain things that are a function of capitalism. There are certain things that are a function of, of, of sexism. There are certain things that are a function of, of imperialism and so on and so forth. Now, our racism intersecting and intertwining in certain types of ways 
with capitalism, with sexism, with imperialism, without question. But when we're specifically and only talking about race and racism, I am specifically talking about it in reference to when we have racial inequities, when we have people justifying those inequities by saying there's something wrong with particular racial groups. You're right. I no longer care about how the actions of other black individuals reflect on me since none of us are race representatives, nor is any individual responsible for someone else's racist ideas. To you, what explains why we put so much emphasis on the actions of an individual and anecdotal evidence as representative of some larger systemic issue? Why do we just base so much of our news stories, so much of our news coverage, so much of our news analysis Why is it so based on anecdotal evidence and why isn't there a call by journalists for less anecdotal evidence and real hard evidence? I think, I think if if we actually had a, uh, if we actually spoke about these larger social and political and economic issues with empirical and other forms of actual evidence, I think we'd be much better off. But, but as you know, people like anecdotes, people like stories, and and that's really what attracts people to watch a media clip or to, to obviously to to watch a movie a good story even though that good story is only representative of that good story and even though we try to use it to talk about larger societal issues that it's not representative of and i also think as it relates to race one of the central features of racist ideas is it causes the black individual to fundamentally represent the race. In other words, when, when, when people see a black individual who just committed a crime, instead of saying that black individual committed a crime, they're like, see, black people are more criminal-like. <laughs> so they generalize the individual negativity of an individual black person, and that has long been one of the features of racist ideas, which is how racist ideas have spread because you're going to see individual black people acting negatively because black people are imperfect. Black people are human. And when they see those individual negativities, it substantiates their racist ideas as opposed to allows them to see that that's one individual who is not representing the race. In neoliberalism, I mean, I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, so if you can help me, I would really, really appreciate it. In neoliberalism, does an and individuals' actions become representative of that collective group while neoliberalism simultaneously glorifies the actions of the individual denying and dismissing any collective as wrong? Because I, I find it odd that, when, that we judge everyone for their individual actions under neoliberalism. Yet, when an individual or a certain group takes, uh, of a certain group takes an individual, individual action, we suddenly see that indicative of the entire collective group that neoliberalism believes they represent. So why the contradiction under neoliberalism of not judging an individual for their own actions and instead applying an individual's actions to blaming an entire group? Well, I think because it, it substantiates power, because it, it, it causes individuals to, to think that the reason why poor people and working people and, and people of color are, are struggling was, is because of their own individuality is because of what they're doing wrong and it of course when they see those individuals doing wrong it generalizes um that that entire group as doing wrong as opposed to those people in positions of power and so i think 
these neoliberal ideas, like racist ideas, essentially tell people the problem is people, not power. So focus your efforts on going after and challenging and resisting and, and harming and fighting other people, not power. You write, I've come to see that the movement from racist to anti-racist is always ongoing. It requires understanding and snubbing racism based on biology, ethnicity, body, culture, behavior, color, space, and class. And beyond that, it means standing ready to fight at racism's intersections with other bigotries. Does racism here in the United States, racism that was written into the Constitution, lead to misogyny, transphobia, Islamophobia, is racism toward blacks the gateway drug to all the other hatreds that so permeate the United States? Well, I, I think certainly when, when you are susceptible to, to one form of bigotry, it, it makes you susceptible to others, partly because all of these bigotries are constantly reinforcing each other. And so to give an example, you know, when you, when you take, for instance, um, sexist ideas that suggest that that women are sort of by nature weak and and men are by nature strong and racist ideas that suggest that black women are not really women and the most superior women are white women those ideas intersect to create the idea of the superior weak white woman who is above the inferior strong black woman who's like a man. And, and, and the idea of the weak white woman who Ku Klux Klansmen made the case, oh, we're lynching black people to protect the weak white woman, has long, of course, been a feature of, of America's racist life. And then the idea of the strong black woman who essentially can be enslaved and put to hard labor like she's a brute, like she's a man, has also been a feature of America's racist life. And this this, these ideas function as a result of this intersection of racist and, and sexist ideas. And that reminds me how Nazi Germany adopted so many of the racist ideas that were coming out of the United States, especially during the era of the early 20th century with the ideas of eugenics. How much do you think the United States is responsible for not just racism here in the United States, but racism in other parts of the world? How much has the United States exported our racism to the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, you, you, I think that obviously it's really hard to sort of say definitively, but when you look at racist states around the world, whether you're talking about Nazi Germany, apartheid South Africa, and, and, and other places, oftentimes the intellectuals in those places, the, the, the people in positions of power in those spaces were inspired in some way by American racists. I think Adolf Hitler is probably the, the best example. Uh, in, in 1916, a New York lawyer by the name of Madison Grant wrote a book entitled The Passing of the Great Race. And, and that book became a bestseller during the war. It pretty much was Trump's rhetoric 100 years ago in terms of how immigrants are ruining America and how he's going to save America from immigrants. It just so happened that at that time, the immigrants who were ruining America were not only people of color, but also Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants, Russian immigrants, Polish immigrants, every immigrant that was not Anglo-Saxon. And, and so Adolf Hitler, of course, Jewish immigrants as well. And, and so Adolf Hitler, when he was imprisoned, he read 
the passing of the great race and ultimately called it his Bible. So what would you say to someone who believes that uh, the kind of racism that we see from President Trump, that 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 if he was he did not win in 2020 and sad to say, I think that he's going to win in 2020. But if he if to those who think if we vote him out of power in 2020, that that's going to have a major impact on racism in the United States. What would you say to someone who argues that we got to get rid of Trump because he's racist and we have to confront racism? I would say that they essentially have not studied the 2016 election and the two reasons why, I should say three reasons why Donald Trump won. The first reason was when, 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 when scholars have studied what distinguishes Trump voters more than anything else, they found it, it was their racist ideas. In other words, Trump didn't create their racist ideas. He recognized them and tapped into them. And they supported him because, of, because he was essentially speaking to their, their racist ideas. And secondly, uh, he also won some very crucial swing states because of voter suppression, because of voter ID laws. For instance, in Wisconsin, a state he won by about 20,000 votes, um, they had a very strict voter ID law, which uh, some estimates point to suppress as many as 200,000 black votes. And, and so, and of course, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and, and North Carolina, which he won as well, they had these new voter uh, suppression policies that were allowed I should say that pro- have proliferated across the country, um, particularly in the wake of the Shelby v. Holder decision that essentially stated that there was no need for federal preclearance of, of new voter ID laws. And then the third reason was, of course, um, Russian hackers who essentially looked at the racial divide and figured that we can essentially expose this, attack this, capitalize on this by driving Americans apart. By, by causing black people in particular to not vote for Hillary Clinton because they were constantly telling black Americans, rightfully so, about what Clinton did in, in, in the 1990s. And, and so those are the three reasons, which had very little to do with Trump, except Trump tapped into and benefited from those racist ideas, from that voter suppression, and from those Russian hackers. And that can easily happen again. So how good of a job are Democrats then doing at pri- prioritizing what seems to be the most important issue, voter suppression? I mean, I'm not sure if you watched the, the uh, debates, but I did. And, and I, can, I think it can maybe came up one time in one debate for a few minutes. And I don't think it was ever asked by the, any of the moderators. I think they asked about race relations and, and someone mentioned uh, voter suppression. And, 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 and I don't see any of these sort of candidates running on, um, or I should say, putting together a plan to combat voter suppression. And, 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 and so I think that obviously it's not a major issue, partly because I think Democrats believe, and I think this makes sense, that they need to get elected, right, to, to stop these laws from continuing to proliferate, particularly at, at the state level. I have just a couple more questions for you, Ibram. In your book, you share your journey of being raised in the dueling racial consciousness of the Reagan era, black middle class, then 
right turning into the 10-lane highway of anti-black racism, a highway mysteriously free of police and free on gas, and veering off into the two-lane highway of anti-white racism, where gas is rare and police are everywhere before finding and turning down the the unlit dirt road of anti-racism. And from that, you can tell why you've won a National Book Award. What is the difference between anti-white racism and anti-racism? How fine or defined is the line between anti-white racism and anti-racism? Well, I think as I talk about in the in this chapter called White, uh, when I was in college and I experienced the 2000 election as a freshman in Tallahassee, Florida at FAMU, and I heard firsthand and, and secondhand stories from fellow FAMU black students whose, whose, whose friends and, and family members' votes were spoiled or, or, or suppressed. And in many cases, the villains who were suppressing those votes were, were white people. That caused me to start to think that the problem, the fundamental problem, was that there was something inherently wrong with white people. So I came to college thinking there was something wrong with black people, as I said in that speech. And then I was like, you know what, there's something wrong with black people and white people. And, and so I thought that there was something wrong with every sort of everyday white people. And it wasn't until later that I realized that the problem wasn't literally every white person as much as it was people in positions of power, racist power, racist policymakers that were the fundamental problem. And when I came to see that the problem was racist power and not average white people who were simultaneously, obviously victimizing people if they were racist, but then simultaneously being mass manipulated by people in positions of power. Once I came to see that that fundamental problem was power, that is when I started down really the journey of being anti-racist. We have been speaking with historian Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Ibram will be making an appearance here in the Chicago area on How to Be an Anti-Racist, Friday, September 6th at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. Ibram will be interviewed by Marcus Campbell, the assistant superintendent and principal at ETHS. Find out more about this event by going to familyactionnetwork.net. And Ibram, if you would allow me, I just want you to know that you always have an open invitation to being on our show whenever you want to. And expect me to be bugging you for the rest of your life to be coming back on our show (laughs) because I really enjoy our conversations. The one we had uh, back in July 2016 to discuss your fantastic book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. That's still one of my very favorite interviews I've ever done on this show, and I've been doing this show since 1996. So I want you to know that you are always welcome, despite the fact that our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience (laughs) might hate the response. You write the basic struggle we're all in, the struggle to be fully human and to see that others are fully human. Now I'm going to ask a question I've been asking many of our guests since February when we spoke with scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, the incarceration of African-American women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland, about reclaiming our humanity. Damaris writes about the, quote, long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less 
than human. Why is it so difficult to see everyone as fully human? Why do we? Why do so many not want to recognize that we are all part of the same same humanity? What's the attraction to dehumanization? I think there's so many different attractions, and I, I think first and foremost, you have people who have ex- who have quote become successful, and they just really want to believe that the only reason that why they're successful has been because of their own ingenuity and hard work. They don't want to accept the idea that they have had opportunities that other people have not had. And in only imagining that the reason why they're successful has been their own hard work and ingenuity, they're essentially opening the door to this idea that there's something wrong with other people that is not essentially wrong with them. They're opening the door to this idea that they're fully human and that other people are not fully human. And that's why they don't have as much as, as they do. And, and simultaneously, people are constantly fed these ideas that the reason why people are poor is because of their poor attitudes. The reason why people are rich is because they're just so um, smart and hardworking. We're constantly fed these ideas that, that certain people are less than human. And, and until we start striving to be anti-racist, start recognizing the equality of humanity, you know, we'll continue to not be able to truly be fully human and be in communion with all of humanity. Ibram, truth gives me joy. And despite the content of what we've been discussing today, racism, uh, this conversation has given me a lot of joy. And I really appreciate you being back on our show. It is always truly an honor. And I look forward to having you back on the show. Definitely. It's always an honor for me to come on your show. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Ibram. That's historian Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. You can find out more about Ibram at IbramXKendi.com. That's I-B-R-A-M. And Kendi is K-E-N-D-I. You can also follow Ibram on Twitter at Dr. Ibram. That's just D-R-I-B-R-A-M. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. Coming up on this week's This is Hell, we'll try to figure out why the media has such a bias against Bernie Sanders. We'll be told what is actually happening in Brazil that the U.S. media ignores. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. This is hell, the best radio show and podcast nobody's ever heard of, despite airing since 1996 and streaming since 2001. See, I told you this is hell. Liberal media outlets like the New York Times and MSNBC have consistently shown an anti-Bernie Sanders bias. Here to tell us how they display this bias against Bernie and why they are biased, writer, video host, and the host of the Katie Helper show podcast Katie Helper wrote the Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting articles, Sydney Ember's Secret Sources, and MSNBC's Anti-Sanders Bias Makes It Forget How to Do Math. Welcome to This Is Hell, Katie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Wow, you sound incredibly clear. No wonder we got new studios. Katie is also about to launch a new podcast with past guests on This Is Hell, Rolling Stone writer Matt Taibbi called Useful Idiots. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Useful Idiots. What is that show going to be about? 
Well, we actually did launch it today, so you can find it and subscribe and rate and review it. I'm so predictable on iTunes. Um, but it's basically a look at the media and at politics and doing it from a uh, hopefully irreverent angle and um, also kind of looking at things beyond the just Democrat-Republican mm-hmm. political dichotomy and uh, criticizing everyone. Which Let's, is always fun. I want to start with your article about Cindy Embers. We'll get back to your work with uh, Matt Taibbi because he's been on our show sure. in the past as well. Uh, yeah. In it, you write, uh, New York Times reporter Sidney Ember has a problem with Bernie Sanders, which may be why the paper has her cover him. Ember is supposed to write reported articles, not op-eds, but she consistently paints a negative picture of Sanders' temperament, history, policies, and or political prospects in the over two dozen pieces she's done on him. This makes sense since the New York Times documented anti-Sanders uh, bias, which can be found among both editors and reporters alike. So why would, I, I'm, I apologize for trying to ask you to guess somebody's motivations. But no, it's why, okay. I, li- I like doing that a lot. <laughs> cool. Speculation is awesome. Why would the yeah. New York Times be anti-Sanders? After all, we're told by Fox News in the far right that the New York Times is so left-wing it verges on being socialist, if not commie. So why in the world right, would the only right? Why would the why in the world would the liberal Times not support Sanders even be a mouthpiece for his campaign? Right. Well, I mean, one of the things is that there are a couple of different issues. Uh, you know, he Sanders is critical of the political establishment, the media establishment. Uh, he doesn't run in the same circles as a lot of the people. Uh, unlike other politicians who I think do really rub elbows with a lot of these people. And there's a lot of, you know, fraternizing between the media and the political elite. Um, The other thing is that I think that some people do have, it's kind of like a group think, and and some people also find his demeanor unsettling, um, which is, is a bit of a problematic thing. I mean, we remember probably Mimi Roca, um, who was a federal prosecutor, uh, saying that Sanders made her skin crawl, which was kind of shocking, although nothing should shock me anymore. And she's a legal analyst on MSNBC. And she actually said this on television while miked, um, not during a commercial break. I mean, this was part of something she felt comfortable saying publicly. Um, and I think that uh, what happens is probably then when Sanders speaks out against media bias uh, and, and, and gets totally unfairly equated with Trump for doing that, which is we should talk about, but that's one of the like the, the dumbest false equivalencies out there. Um, I think, you know, the media probably feels uh, somewhat defensive. And I think it's a testament to how entitled they are and how uh, little accountability there is and how much impunity there is that they are just not used to ever being called out by people unless it's total opposite, ideological opposite. So, you know, the, the New York Times is used to being called out by Fox News and, and the other way around. But I don't think people are used to it when it's not uh, on the other side of the kind of ideological um, side of the spectrum. I was at an ACLU conference years ago, and there was somebody in the audience who was talking about uh, something that MSNBC had reported. And I said, you should be really careful with just echoing or just repeating. This is back in 2000. 12, maybe, uh, echoing what MSNBC is saying, because there had recently been a study done where compared to Fox News, there were far there was far less uh, 
coverage of the other side of the debate on MSNBC than there was on Fox News. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe this report. And I said, so you just got to be careful about this because this right. is this is Democratic Party central. This is their propaganda. Yeah. And totally. the response from the person in the audience was, yeah, but they're on our side. What, right. What, yeah. What do we miss when we see that as being on? Yeah. I mean, the, the truth is, I used to be like that a little bit, too. I mean, I think it's easy to fall into that, and especially was, I think, when Obama was president and when Bush was president, because um, in, in a way that I'm trying to think why it's not the same way with Trump. But um, there I think that it's very dangerous because um, in in some ways, I mean, I've said this somewhat uh, over the toply and gotten a lot of pushback for it. But I think there's something there. I mean, I do think that everyone kind of on the liberal left er, uh, side of, of the political divide, and I see that difference as bigger and bigger, like day with each coming day, the, the liberal versus left divide. Um, but I think that's, that everyone knows that Fox News is right wing, right? Everyone knows that it's um, very ideological, that it'll exaggerate and lie. I actually think that MSNBC and The Times can be very scary because they have such an insidious bias. And they're considered like the reasonable adults in the room. And a lot of them are reasonable in, in many ways. Uh, very smart. You know, Rachel Maddow is a, um, a Rhodes Scholar. But there is a very scary group think. And I think, you know, there's a... There's so little challenging of, of war. And I think foreign policy and war is an area where you really see that there's a scary silencing um, among uh, MSNBC. You like are never presented with anti-war voices. And in that way, it's not that much different than Fox News. In fact, you have this weird thing where you have people on Fox News, and this is not, I'm not a Fox News fan. I go on Fox News to fight with people. I've been on there to like defend Ilan Omar. Um, but... Uh, it wasn't Tucker Carlson show. It was Laura Ingram's lovely, lovely, lovely lady. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that um, it, in a weird way, you will get people on Fox News who who are more anti-war. And that doesn't mean I don't mean that they're anti-war, they're peaceniks, they're anti-militarism um, in any progressive way. I mean, you can oppose war for various reasons and you can oppose war for racist reasons and for, you know, isolationist reasons. But it is scary that that's like that's where the anti-war resistance is on some levels, on some level. And I'm being facetious because, you know, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are not anti-war in any meaningful sense. But it is scary. And it, it points not to Fox News's um, decency, which it doesn't have, but it, it points to the failure of the liberal media to actually, you know, take on any any of the powers that be. And that makes sense because they're run by corporations. Um and as Bernie Sanders pointed out in a debate the other day, you know, where Jack, Jake Tapper was totally asking right wing talking points as questions. And Bernie Sanders pointed out, you know, during the commercial, there's going to be a pharmaceutical company uh, advertisement. And of course, there was. <laughs> um, yeah. And then he got to call the conspiracy theorist. That's my favorite. That's my favorite thing. So, yeah, he calls out the actual media bias. It's total gaslighting, right. total gaslighting of Sanders and all of his supporters. We see this with the media bias discussion. We see this with the Bernie bro discussion, which is is has been debunked time and time again. It doesn't stop people from pretending that Sanders supporters are a monolith of straight white men. Um, you know, yet another study came out, a Pew, stu a Pew um, study came out that showed that Sanders supporters are actually less white than any other Democratic candidate supporters. Um, but that myth is um, remains. 
And yeah, I think I think that you know the pieces that I that I wrote in in Fair. One of them focused on how Sydney Ember, uh, who's a New York Times journalist, uh, like you said in the in the setup, you know, she does reporting on Sanders. These are not op eds. They're not they're not um, hot takes, think pieces, which is what makes them that much scarier. I think because again, you're not your guard is not up. You're not reading someone on a rant. Um, and she just that she uses so many tricks to discredit and smear Sanders. And I was really overwhelmed, honestly. I had like thirty pages of writing, and I had to whittle it down and and focus on one thing. Um, I could have written a piece on how she constantly frames everything he does as like f- for um, to get attention. Everything he does is attention seeking. Um, and everything he does is an attempt to to manage his. Um, his campaign, which is always um, in in crisis. And it's interesting because people who write about Sanders campaign being in crisis says it's in crisis regardless of where he is in the polls, when he's at the head of the polls, when he was the first when he was the four, you know, at the very front before Biden entered, he was still having some somehow having electability issues. Let's talk about um, those electability yeah. issues just for a second, because you talk about Embers and the Times writing about his yeah. viability and ability to govern. In your opinion, should a media outlet be doing news reporting on a candidate's perceived chances of winning when not one vote has been cast? Is the probability of being elected newsworthy when Mario Cuomo, Rudy Giuliani, Herman Cain had led in polls and possibly more importantly, how well do journalists know the likelihood of who will win yeah. or not a year and a half out from an election? Right. Well, yeah, I think that's true. And that, again, there's this dangerous pseudo objectivity, just like there's a dangerousness in in the, you know, alleged balance or, or reasonableness of, of MSNBC and The New York Times. Um, it's it parallels the 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 scariness of of allegedly re- um, objective reporting. Right. So, yeah, it is. You can't really say these things, especially when you don't. You, what, what happens a lot in the media um, is that people just kind of repeat um, conventional wisdom nuggets that don't have any basis to them. And you hear them enough times, you actually start to think that they're they're real and truthful. And you don't even realize that you're, I mean, some people are cynical and, and say, intentionally saying these things, which they know are sound bites that don't have any evidence. But then when you hear it enough times, it does start to sound like reality and conventional wisdom. And um, what happens is often people don't realize they, they conflate like pragmatism and realism with ideology. So they think that they're just stating the truth and they don't realize that there are all these interests that want us to see things a certain way. And, you know, poll after poll showed that Sanders was more electable against Trump. And somehow that narrative never like crept into the into any you know mainstream media. Um, so that is, again, I would so much prefer people are just like, I really don't like Bernie Sanders, like the Mimi Roca thing. I, I think I wrote in that piece was kind of refreshing in my second fair piece. It's kind of refreshing to hear someone say Sanders makes my skin crawl. I mean, it's gross and scary in some ways, but there is a nice radical honesty to it. Um, no one thinks she's just reporting or being objective. Um, but with Ember, you know, and other reporters, and it's not just Ember. I mean, what's interesting is, and I want to do a piece on this is, I probably shouldn't give it away, but uh, all right, I will. Um if you look at the Twitter feeds of New York Times reporters, they spend so much time, so much of their Twitter feed is dedicated to retweeting other people, um, who their colleagues, which is fine, but also retweeting um, articles by other people that are just critical of Sanders, no matter where they're from, and then defending each other against, um, you know, very well-documented 
allegations of media bias. So it's they don't really hide it that much. I mean, they kind of hi- they try to hide it in their writing. They certainly don't hide it on Twitter. Um, and I do think Twitter can be an interesting window into into people's you know into where the soul of media would be. You're welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be here all week. Um, but yeah, it's it's and and this piece what I focused on with with Ember was that she just totally totally misrepresented her source, her sources, um, and she had to because she was the sources she she cited to criticize Sanders were so obviously had ulterior motives that if she had presented who they were honestly and truthfully, people would not have taken them seriously. You write that um, Ember came yeah. to the New York Times with a resume limited to the finance industry. She was an analyst for BlackRock. Her husband, right. uh, Mike Bechek, is also in the investment business. Business. He was a senior associate at uh, Bain Capital. Let's assume the Times doesn't see a conflict of interest in having a former sure. BlackRock analyst whose husband is with Bain Capital, which was created And whose father-in-law Ryan. was... Uh, the CEO of Bain Capital, by the way. Right. So let's assume yeah. they do not see any sure. conflict of interest in her covering Bernie, who is critical of firms like BlackRock and Bain Capital. Right. To you, right. what explains their inability to see that conflict of interest? What does that inability reveal to you about the Times' views of what is a conflict of interest and what is not in general? Right. I mean, I think it's always interesting if it's uh, delusional, um, disingenuous or ignorant. But I do think with the times it's it's we basically know the answer is that it's disingenuous um, because, you know, we happen to have this window into how um, it works at The New York Times, because coincidentally, um, not by not intentionally, the Times uh, back in 2016. I don't know if you remember this, but they changed a headline a couple of hours after it went up. And they made a piece more anti-Sanders than it was. Uh, one of the thing they really, things they really wanted to do was show that Sanders was not that viable or did not have chances um, to become president. And also they wanted to cast doubt on his ability to govern effectively. So um, a, a journalist wrote the article. And then a couple hours later, there was a, a headline shift. So it went from Bernie Sanders achieved um, legislative victories through side doors. It went from that headline to through side doors, Bernie Sanders achieved moderate legislative victories. So obviously flipping the order of the clauses and also putting in a moderately, uh, sorry, a modest, putting in a modest to modify the the victories. Uh, They also um, deleted a sentence that that was lauding Sanders' ability to get things done in the Senate. And they added two paragraphs that talked about him and his policies as kind of pie in the sky um, and not realistic and not something that you could um, necessarily um, copy on a national level. And that is just something we happened to see. Like, we saw that because people noticed that. And, And what's amazing is that when they got busted for that, it's called stealth editing, when you make changes, significant changes, and you don't acknowledge them. And they got caught, and the public editor said that they should not have done that, that they should have acknowledged it, that the changes were substantive enough, that um, they were kind of weird, first of all, but also um, needed to be acknowledged. And then, of course, what do, what do the senior editors of the New York Times do? They defend their decision. Say that They said that the original piece hadn't been realistic enough about his chances, hadn't said enough about how realistic his chances were. And then, lo and behold, the public editor gets fired. Not, uh, I don't, it wasn't this public editor, but they got rid of that position. Wow. 
you, yeah. you write about uh, Ember's May 17th article, Mayor and Foreign Minister. Oh, my God. Sanders that was amazing. Cold, uh, to Cold War to Burlington. Yeah, that was an amazing article. And Alex, you're yeah. right. It was in uh, May. Uh, and that article, you write, was presented as problematic and incriminating the senator's support of Nicaraguan Sandinistas and his opposition to the CIA-backed Contra rebels. Right. Ember's first and apparently most pressing question you point out to Sanders was whether he had heard an anti-American chant at a rally he and approximately 500,000 other people attended. Her second question was whether he would have stayed at the event if he had heard it. Now, I don't want to read his entire response. He was given, uh, Sidney Ember yeah. was able to interview him afterwards, but he did say the United States at that time, I don't know how much you know about this, Sydney, was actively supporting the Contras to overthrow the government. Of course, there was anti-American sentiment there. This was a war being funded by the United States against the people of Nicaragua. People were being killed in that war. I think, Sydney. With all due respect, you don't understand a word that I'm saying. Some Democrats came out and said this kind of alleged attack on a journalist, especially oh a female God. journalist, was Trump. Right, and young. There's the right. there's the equivalency that Embers likes to find. How would you compare Trump's attacks on journalism to Sanders' response to Ember? Well, I mean, Sanders' response was uh, he was just really pointing out the facts. This the questions that she asked were really embarrassingly ignorant. They were, I mean, totally demeaning and dismissive of the thousands of people in Central America who were, I mean, murdered, killed, wiped out, raped, tortured. I mean, the Contras skinned people like the this was a a, a terrorist campaign. They were terror. They used terrorism and terror. That was part of their official um, program. You know, of course, the Sandinistas, you always have during war people on both sides will do bad things. But there's no both sidesism here. I mean, there's no equivalency here and, and no human rights organization at the time or since has ever pretended that they were at all comparable. One side used terror systemically and systematically, and one side didn't. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was such a, a, a jingoistic, of course, I'm sure Sydney doesn't know what that word means, but it was such a jingoistic and presumptuous framing as if the only thing that would matter would be the, the how these people who, again, had been um, had a, their, a civil war funded by the United States uh, government. And of course, Reagan broke the law and, um, you know, went behind Congress's back and there was the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, but the idea that that was the relevant question about whether Sanders heard something that was kind of mean about about Americans was really humiliating and um, just so lacking any awareness. And um, uh, yeah, like jingoistic and ignorant. And that, you know, Sanders didn't, like, make fun of the way she looked. She, he didn't make fun of the way she talked. He didn't um, – he doesn't ever encourage violence. And I actually think it's and, – and this actually is interesting. You know, one a piece – because, of course, Ember is not the only one who does this. She's just not as subtle as other people are. But um, – and so she's a little sloppy, like she she quoted a Hillary person and forgot to say and didn't include that she was a Hillary person. She called her Democratic strategist. She didn't include that she was had been a um, an advisor for the ready for Hillary super PAC. But um, I bring this up, this false equivalency, because it's interesting on a very meta level. Another New York Times reporter, Yamichi Alcindor, who's since left the Times, wrote a piece that was so unfairly blaming Sanders for the shooting, I remember there was a shooting and, and Steve Scalise got shot but not killed. Some other people did get killed. 
And the shooter was someone who did like Sanders. And Yamichi Alcindor at the New York Times, her headline read, um, shooting test movement that Sanders founded. And it was such an attack and such a hit piece that people who worked for Hillary Clinton condemned it. Um, and they said, you know, Sanders has never condoned or incited violence. So that's just another example of um, the way that and of course, there was this f false equivalency between Trump and Sanders for inciting violence. And again, Sanders never does that. And, you know, sometimes people will even compare them because they're both um, critical of the media or they're both uh, speak to angry, disaffected people. And if you don't get this incredibly relevant difference, which is that one guy is saying, you're angry, you should be angry, blame Muslims and Mexicans. The other guy is saying, you're angry, I get why you're angry, do not blame Muslims and Mexicans, but instead blame corporate greed and inequality. If you don't see the profound difference there, then you don't actually care about um, Mexicans and Muslims. I've because, Go yeah. Ahead. No, because if you did, you would see how, how incredibly significant the difference is. They're diametrically opposed. And in fact, one of the things, and this is so frustrating, is that the way you defeat Trumpism is with Sandersism. That's precisely the way you do it. Um, you, you speak to the same thing and you tell people to, and you lead people in the opposite directions. And the Democrats would rather just like, and again, this these things are not mutually exclusive. There's this false dichotomy that, you know, you have to re reach the white working class one way, the um, non-white working class another way. And that's that's silly. But, you know, in general, there's, there's this idea that if you uh, it, either you want to defeat Trump and you want to do everything you can within um, a certain moral ethical framework to do that and you want to reach people. And so you 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 do reach out to people who maybe would vote for Trump and you or not even would be, but could get to a point where they stay at home or vote for Trump. And you make the case for why you feel their pain and why they shouldn't be scapegoating people. I mean, what, what some Democrats, I think, just want to turn their back on everyone who's not already with us. And that's that's the self-indulgent purity politics that they will accuse that centrist Dems accuse the left of having. Yeah, exactly. That's another irony. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've noticed is the impact, I, at least I think, the impact that Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 has had on political rhetoric within the Democratic Party in yeah. that well, organizations like the Third Way, you point out that they oh, try to define themselves as center left, and they're certainly not a center left organization. Yeah. Uh, we have Joe Biden uh, now being, or uh, we have CNN now calling the Democrats who are running those on the left and those that are pragmatic progressives. Right, exactly. Which yeah. is a progressive yeah. was a term that not many people were using back in 2016 to label their campaign, but uh, Bernie Sanders certainly was. And I saw this report on CNN, I believe it was yesterday, where it was kind of a man on the street thing where they were talking to Trump supporters. And they said, we asked the Trump supporters who they would vote for if they did vote for somebody from the Democratic side. And the reporter said, and their response wasn't Joe Biden because they right. said they found him to be too progressive. So what impact has Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign and his current 2020 campaign had on the way that language seems to have shifted within the Democratic Party in a really Orwellian way? Well, what did they mean by the too progressive thing? Sorry if I'm being daft, but what was the... Um, is your point that, that they framed it that way, but it wasn't really... That wasn't really their response? Well, I don't know. I would, it was so uncertain. That's it was so, so weird. ambiguous. I know. And they didn't tell you who the candidate was. Well, what does was that mean? I don't know. I don't know. That's Too why I was hoping. progressive. I know. 
No, yeah, I'd, I've never, I have to look into that. I mean, CNN reporters are, oh my God, Poppy Harlow. Um, it's it's law, not loud, by the way. If you're listening to this, Poppy, I just want you to know. Um, uh, as into praise, she, she, I heard her. She's not very good at the teleprompter. That's another thing. I would love, give me that job. I'll do it. I'll even say the terrible things that you guys write, CNN, because I can, I'm just good at reading teleprompters, <laughs> I assume. Who knows? Maybe I'm not good at it. But um, no, I mean, I think that uh, it, the interesting thing about, about uh, you, po- you pointed this out, and it's a very, this idea that, oh, it's a great idea on paper, all these things, you know, Medicare for all, it's great, but it's, you know, it's utopian and we're pragmatic and we, we don't practice purity politics. And it, of course, the reality is that these things are overwhelmingly popular and they are not just good policy, which they are, but they're good politics. And so whenever people say that that's a great idea, but it's not politically viable, you should know that they either are being disingenuous or just don't know what they're talking about. Um you probably if, want to respond to them differently, depending on which one it is. But you, I mean, the point is that those those programs are incredibly popular and they have mass support. And you know, there is what is interesting is when people call things radical and mainstream, they're right in that certain ideas are not in the mainstream among political elites and media elites, but among the population at large, they are mainstream. So. To be fair, some people who are, you know, either out of touch or just only care about their dinner party circuits, um, when they say something's not mainstream, they're being they're they're being honest about a very limited audience. The problem is they're pretending that it's everyone. You mentioned how people who are opposed to Bernie Sanders within the Democratic Party have worked hard to erase Sanders' identity. How successful oh has erasing gosh. Sanders' identity been for his detractors? Because Anytime someone in 2016, this is probably a horrible thing for me to admit, anytime uh, someone in 2016 said I was sexist for being pro-Bernie on social media, I would claim they were anti-Semitic and this conversation right. would end. So how successful right. have, have they been? And do you think that's a, I mean, is, cynically speaking, do you think that's a good strategy? Um, it's funny. I remember when, when again, Yamiche Alcindor, another New York, the, the New York Times person I mentioned, she she did a she pulled a Fox. If you want to talk about false equivalency, she pulled a Fox News move. She in 2016 asked Sanders what he had to say to people who said, right? Some say that's that's in the in the documentary out Foxed. They show how much Fox News uses that. Some say, people say, some say. And the New York Times is doing that now a lot. A lot. But Yamiche Alcindor said to Sanders, what do you say to people who say it's sexist for you not to drop out? Um, and Sanders is like, is that a serious question? She's like, yeah, it is. And then he's saying, you know, well, why is it sexist? She goes, because, you know, you're standing in the way of, of the first um, female president. And of course, well, wh- why doesn't why isn't um, Hillary Clinton anti-Semitic? Because she stood in the way of the first Jewish president. Uh, of course, you know, the it, it, what's interesting is that Sanders really does not ever go that route. Um, every I mean, when 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 Politico wrote that piece about how he was cheap and uh, rich and they literally, I don't know if you saw this, I assume you did, maybe it's a repressed memory though, If you, because it's very upsetting. They literally had a picture of him holding two houses with a third house coming out of his head. And uh, they also had a picture of him standing in front of a money tree. It was a tree, but instead of leaves, it had dollars on it, bills, and bills on it. Um, and he did, I think, actually say that that was anti-Semitic, um, which, it, I mean, at the very, to be charitable, it, it was, uh, lazy and sloppy and and played into an anti-Semitic trope. 
um, to be to be charitable. But he doesn't really do that. I mean, he, his Jewish identity. What's interesting is his. Oh, this got to give Bernie all the props for this. You know, it, it is interesting. He's probably the most most critical of Israel, most Israel policy cr- critical politician um, of his stature. I'm sure he is, and it's interesting that he does that, and he's Jewish. Um, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But you know, he. It's really important. Um, I think as a secular progressive Jew, that doesn't matter if you're secular though, as a, as a Jew who's critical of Israel, it's really important to, to see this and to see someone who is Jewish, whose family, you know, half his father's side of the family was wiped down in the Holocaust. And that's often weaponized by people to, to justify mistreatment, um, of Palestinians. And it's really great to see a guy who's so, has such a strong Jewish identity, um, just, you know, come out for human rights and, and speak, uh, you know, truth to power and um, criticize what Netanyahu is doing. Uh, so that's interesting. And then and what you have is you have these two simultaneous forces, though, where you have people who are casually anti-Semitic, um, erase his identity, uh, as, as a woman did in one of Ember's articles, where she said he's just a straight white man, an old white man at the end of the day. And this, of course, is someone who I mentioned earlier, there was a woman who worked for Hillary Clinton, who Ember um, omitted that. She did wind up having to put that in her piece without acknowledgement, of course. She just snuck it in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's this there's simultaneous casual anti-Semitism or, or kind of playing into anti-Semitic tropes and double standard, because if anyone said anything remote that, that played into sexism as much as this, this, this smears against Sanders plays into anti-Semitism, they'd be, they'd be totally written off as sexist, right? Um, but for Sanders, you know, you can, you don't have to make any effort in trying to be sensitive at all, but they, they say that. And then they also pretend he's not a real Jew because he's not religious, which is just very ignorant. Um, (laughs) one last question for you, Katie, uh, we've been speaking with writer, video host, and the host of the Katie Halper show podcast, Katie Halper, who wrote the fairness and accuracy and reporting articles, Sydney Ember's secret sources and, and MSNBC's anti-Sanders bias makes it forget how to do math. Katie has also just launched today a new podcast with past guest on This Is Hell, Rolling Stone writer Matt Taibbi, called Useful Idiots. And you know that show is going to be good because Matt once said of our show, This Is Hell and myself, I applaud Chuck's professionalism, his incisive wit, his keen sense of the moment. He is one of the most important social commentators on the American scene. Pretty impressive, right? But then Matt had to add this. Only wish I could remember being on his program. So you got to listen Ooh, to Katie's show. Ouch. I know. Yeah. And then I met him and he thought it Burn. was, we find it hilarious. Anyway, so one yeah. last question for you and our final yeah. question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to sure. hate your response. Of course. Of course. Who is a bigger challenger to the possibility of Bernie Sanders being president? Donald Trump or the Democratic Party? Oh. I'm going to say Democratic Party, because if he gets if he passes, if he makes it to the primary, I'm not as worried. I think, sadly, there are people who consciously or unconsciously would rather he lose the primary, even if that means someone wins the primary who loses to Donald Trump, then he wins both. I like that. I like your prediction, and I'm going to keep you to it. Thank you so much for being yeah. on our show. I really appreciate it. And you Thank can follow you. Katie on Twitter at KT Helps, H-A-L-P-S. You can find out more about Katie at her website, katiehelper.com. That's K-A-T-I-E. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much. Yeah. All Thanks right, so much for having me. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this 
is hell here to tell us everything well not everything because we only have like 20 some minutes but here to tell us what the u.s media is getting wrong about brazil now or is just completely ignoring editor and correspondent brian muir edited and contributed to the collection year of lead washington wall street and the new imperialism in brazil which is the second volume in the series dispatches from a coup in progress welcome back to this is hell brian Hey Chuck, how you doing? It's Good. nice to be back on. I see you're going out with Michael Brooks this weekend. Yes. I had a couple with him in Brooklyn last month when I was up in the U.S. And he's a great guy. All right, good because I'm still kind of I I, I just don't like doing personal appearances because I feel like I'm kind of mobbed by paparazzi. No pimping myself out i just don't want to do that you know i just don't want to do that man I don't, it was my whole problem like i'd like to make money but i don't want to make money and i just it just doesn't make any sense to me brian let's start with uh, your latest article of brazil where the day the sky went out you write on monday august 19th that's this week you left your home on the north side of sao paulo at 2 p.m and headed toward the Tiete bus station. I was picking up a friend arriving from Rio and the bus was late. So at around 3.15, I stepped out of the terminal and looking for a cheaper cup of coffee and all the streetlights were on. And you asked, was I dreaming? Instead, what you saw, all the streetlights were on. You said a freak incident caused by smoke from out of control forest fires burning in thousands of points across the country. And satellite photos were showing that a lot of this was coming from the Amazon rainforest how do profiteers benefit from the burning of the amazon rainforest and would this burning be taking place if dilma or lula was still in office well you've said a lot of things at uh at once just to start off that was really um you know pretty freaky to just be in a city of 20 you know 24 million people or something a huge city and just see everything go black at three in the afternoon i'm still and then like it just seemed weird i couldn't didn't know what it was and i went out drinking with a couple of friends and it was just like it seemed really clammy out and as i got home i found no that was smoke from the amazon jungle which is like a thousand miles away okay it was like it was like, a, you know, I, I felt like the woman in that Lars von Trier movie, what is it, Melancholia or something almost, you know, like what the hell is going on? How could, how could the city get dark from smoke a thousand miles away? So you'd never seen anything even, you'd never seen anything even close to this before in your life? No, I mean, I, I lived up near the Amazon for eight years, like on the entryway to the Amazon, São Luis Maranhão, in a state, half of the states, like in the legal Amazon region, and the other half is pre-Amazon. And I've seen all kinds of forests burning. I used to see, like, on the local news that this or that little town in the countryside was got dark in the afternoon because of forest fires nearby. But I've, I've never seen... This is a... I mean, imagine like if Chicago just got dark at three in the afternoon because there were fires burning in Louisiana. How much smoke would that have to be? And it wasn't like one little cloud that drifted, you know, down or something. It was a continuous smoke cloud stretching from the Amazon jungle 
down south over Sao Paulo. So how have Brazilians reacted to the burning of the rainforest? Do they do they have national national pride in the forest or do those on the right simply not care about the forests and deny the impact of the burning of the forest on the climate in Brazil's environment? Well, it's, you know, first of all, what drives us all is international capitalism. You know, it's luxury products going up to the north like beef, soy, you know, and things like that, have, that have, and, and minerals, you know, like gold and things like that, aluminum, uh, alumina, which is a prime ingredient in aluminum, nickel, all this stuff that's used up in the rich countries in the north comes from the Amazon. You know, like I remember in the 80s when I worked at Greenpeace, McDonald's, I believe, was still buying a lot of its beef from the Amazon. So, the, you know, they helped develop the beef market in that region. And it was the World Bank that first convinced the Brazilian government that they should incorporate destroying the Amazon rainforest into the national development plan. So basically, like in the 60s, early 70s, during the military dictatorship, the World Bank sent a bunch of technocrats down and convinced them that they should rip down the forest in the state of Rondonia and relocate a lot of poor, um, you know, like landless peasants from the impoverished northeast to that state and use it to to raise cattle and things like that. And, that, you know, that's what they did. And from that point forwards, destroying the Amazon was like part of the, a controlled destruction, which spun really heavily out of control in the first couple of decades, you know. Uh, that was like part of the development plan. And it wasn't until um, really, you know, like Chico Mendes in the 80s, who was killed, uh, and his second in command, Marina Silva, who ended up working as Lula's uh, national minister of the environment, you know, you saw inklings of this change of mindset during the end of Fernando Henrique Cardoso's presidency. But it was really the Lula administration that started uh, making the argument that it would be better for Brazil's development to preserve the Amazon rainforest than to destroy it. And so... This is why, and this is something you're not seeing at all, you know, on the, uh, in The Guardian, for example. I mean, I, I remember when Dilma Rousseff was thrown out of office, Jonathan Watson, The Guardian, said, well, the PT's record on the environment was horrible, but Michelle Temer's appointing Sarne Filiu, who's a veteran environmentalist, and that could be a good sign of this all. You know, that, it was a ridiculous thing to say from him. The Sarne family deforested the entire state of Maranhão, where I lived for eight years, and it's, uh, but uh, there was a report given to the United Nations in 2014 called Deforestation Success Stories, okay, by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And chapter two of this document is entitled Brazil, the world's biggest reductions in deforestation and emissions. Okay, uh, and this is like a, a actual like UN report that was generated by this Union of Concerned Sciences, whatever. But they detail exactly what happened, you know. And during the Lula years, they cut, they didn't eliminate deforestation, but they reduced the level of deforestation by 84%. They had the largest reduction in deforestation and carbon emissions in the world at that time. They met their... Um, uh, they met their carbon emission, uh, 2020 UN carbon emissions um, goals like nine years early, you know, and, and most of the reduction in carbon emissions was through this massive reduction in deforestation, you know. And so 
that was all just co- that's all just completely been undone in the last two years, three years since the coup, four, no, sorry, three, whatever, three years since 2016. That's all been undone. And we see now that, you know, Bolsonaro came into power, sending out all these signals to the ranchers and the miners, you know, the the soy farmers and everybody who's interested in ripping down rainforests that he wasn't going to punish them. He cut the budget for the governmental agency fighting global warming by 95%. He butchered all of the regulatory agencies protecting against um, deforestation on indigenous reservations. He's basically told people that he's not going to punish them if they go in and log on indigenous reservations and in national parks and things like that. So we have now a situation where in the first six months of his uh, reign, 20,000 illegal gold miners have moved into this huge Yanomami indigenous reservation near the Pico de Neblina National Park on the border with Amazonas and Horaima. And they're dumping all this mercury into the rivers. And all of these indigenous people are dying of diarrhea right now from drinking this river water. All the fish are dying. And so then that, that's just like one example. The level of deforestation has gone up 82% in the first six months of this year. Jeez. So that's why we have a 1,000 mile long cloud of smoke. <laughs> so, uh, so, Brian, you know that I love talking to you about the U.S. media because they do such a great job uncovering events like this. For instance, on CBS Evening News this week, anchor Nora O'Donnell. After saying that the United States may have its first ever climate change refugees happening right now on Ile de Jean Charles in Louisiana, completely dismissing all those that fled Hurricane Katrina and didn't return to New Orleans, dismissing all those who fled Houston after it was hit by Hurricane Harvey, dismissing all those who fled Puerto Rico after being hit by Hurricanes Irma and then Maria. Following that ludicrous report, O'Donnell said this about the Amazon fires in Brazil. It's not clear what's causing these fires. Critics of right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro say it's due to his policies not saying what those policies are. Of course, she didn't say that. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro says these fires have been set purposely by his opponents purposely to make him look bad. Brian, how clear is the cause behind these fires to the Brazilian public? Yeah, um... I would say most of the Brazilian public understands what's going on because it's an old problem. Everyone knows these fires are man-made. Like no one thinks these fires are just because of a drought. Okay, first of all, but that reporter didn't tell the story properly. What Bolsonaro really said is he accused the international NGOs like Greenpeace of setting the fires <laughs> so they could get more funding. That's what he actually said. So they, you know, in an attempt to make it look like they're giving both sides of the story, there they they lied. That's not he didn't, he, you know, he actually blamed it on the, you know, the NGOs. So it's like World Wildlife Federation, you know, back from slaughtering pandas in China is now setting wildfires in the Amazon jungle. That's basically what he said because it's just it's a clown show, Chuck. It's just like Trump. It's a clown show. Like what George Monbiot said about Boris Johnson, Trump, and Bolsonaro—they're killer clowns. They're just—they're just out there to distract everybody. Well, the oligarchs flee, you know, rob us blind. 
That's what's going on. So, Brian, why does that why does that work, Brian? I don't I don't understand that, and I know it doesn't work on you. I hope it doesn't work on me. Why are is the voting public so easily distracted by whatever Trump? Oh, should you say the the U.S. establishment media as well by whatever Trump is tweeting? Why are they so easily distracted from all of the policies that the Republican administration is implementing right now? Why do they instead just focus on these tweets? Why do they focus on the killer clowns? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I wish <laughs> I wish the answer was so more obvious, but I don't know. I, I assume you saw the great hack. Oh, I have not seen it yet. I, we're trying to get the people okay. on the show because I've seen a couple of clips and I've seen the trailer. It looks really okay. great, but I haven't seen it yet and I really want to. So do you uh, advise that I do? Yeah, I do, because basically what I mean, there's, I don't know, there's probably a lot of criticism. You could get someone who knows more about this on there to criticize it probably. But what, the point that I really took away from it was that they, they admitted that they were using PSYOPs tools. You know, the company that, that owns Cambridge Analytics was initially hired by U.S. military, British military, CIA, MI5, whatever, to try and start adapting traditional PSYOPs tactics that were used in the third world, you know, when they were trying to do regime change operations um, to the Internet age and into the social media. And, you know, they admitted the woman in the movie, um, I forgot her name, but she admitted in, in Parliament in England that they, they basically what Cambridge Analytics then did was they turned these PSYOPs techniques back on their own population. And so I, I think what's happening to people is that this clown routine that we're seeing on a daily basis on MSNBC with the Russians, you know, with the um, the hysteria about this or that thing, depending on which network you're watching. I think it's all just kind of like psyops operations, and so some people are just more susceptible to that than others. You know, not everyone has read enough books that they can shake off that. You know, that people are vulnerable. People are scared. You know, depressed, whatever. And uh, when I was up in the U.S. for a month, I saw people who I love and known for years, you know, who just seem like they've been manipulated by, for example, MSNBC. <laughs> Even the, I mean, they're liberals or whatever, but they're watching that every night. And they begin to think, oh, Trump's about to get impeached. And Brian, you know, I've I had this issue over the summer as well. Somebody who I love deeply and who I have the ultimate respect for their intellect out of the blue just said to me, you know, I said, hey, well, how about Trump now saying that he's going to, I can't remember what it was, whatever, dumb, uh, oh, uh, go to war with Iran. I think it was what the topic was at the time. And this person said to me, well, he's just doing whatever Putin tells him to do. I just, you know, it just saddens me when you hear somebody that you know and respect and you love and you I know, know that I they're... Know. Did you come across the same problem when you were in New York? Yeah, of course. I've gotten into arguments with my aunt who, oh. you know, who saw David Bowie live like 20 times in the 70s and is a wonderful person, you know, <laughs> uh, on about that, you know, like Putin's operating Trump like a hand puppet. Well, why are they on opposite sides in Venezuela then? I don't get it. You know, why is why did Southcom say that the two hostile nations operating external nations in in Latin America right now are China and Russia, and there's a new Cold War starting? I don't. But anyway, 
I, I wanted. I know we don't have that much time, but I wanted to say something else. Oh wait, let me the, ask, the, let me yeah, ask you one thing real quick. Let, let, yeah, yeah. let me ask you one thing real quick because you mentioned something sure. in your article about uh, what's going on in the Amazon. I want to make sure that people understand this, and then we'll get to what you're going to say. You write, if the Amazon rainforest loses another twenty percent of its volume, which could happen in less than ten years if Bolsonaro's rate of destruction holds up, a phenomenon called dieback could occur, in which the entire rainforest could dry off and burn down on its own. If that were to happen, planet Earth would lose twenty percent of its oxygen. Standing on a Sao Paulo street in total darkness at 3.30 p.m. this week. It seemed like this is a reasonable possibility. What happens if we lose 20% of our oxygen, and how much can we blame this on the United States? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I worked at Greenpeace in the 80s for a while. I'm not like a big environmentalist, so I can't speak authoritatively about what exactly would happen, but it doesn't seem very good, you know? It seems like it would be a major problem. And, and the way it's going right now, if something's not done, it looks like it's going to happen. So uh, in, in less like, and for all of the Jacobin articles, just talking about how crappy the European Union is, it looks like the only thing that can stop this right now is the European Union. Because the European Union's talking about sanctions against Brazil if the Amazon and you know, deforestation could, continues at this rate and european countries are cutting back funding for brazil over this but trump doesn't care at all so the only hope right now and like britain pulling out of the european union is a bad thing for the environment because i can't see boris johnson giving sanctions to brazil over this you know i can see boris johnson coming down and like lighting marshmallows with bolsonaro over burning rainforest (laughs) laughing maniacally all right brian you said you wanted to mention something before we get going yeah, like, you don't even know about it. It's not in the media at all. But everything we've been saying in Brazil Wire for the last, you know, four years, being accused as conspiracy theorists and stuff. Right. Uh, yesterday, um, Congressman uh, Hank Johnson and 12 other Democratic congressmen sent a letter to the Department of Justice demanding that they give all these answers to questions about U.S. government role in the 2016 coup and Lula's arrest through collaboration with Operation Car Wash. You know, and it's a lot of the same questions I've been talking about on This Is Hell and stuff. And it's signed by 12, you know, know, what forms of support did the DOJ provide or is still providing to Brazilian judicial agents involved in Operation Car Wash? Describe the involvement of the DOJ in Lava Jato Car Wash. Why did they work on these investigations? Were they involved in Lula's arrest? What's their relationship like with Judge Morrow? You know, it's all this stuff we've been saying on Brazil all these years. Well, all these people are like, you know, all these foreign correspondents were laughing at us and calling us conspiracy theorists. Now it's now Attorney General William Barr has until September 30th to answer like 20 questions about U.S. U.S. involvement in Operation Car Wash Lava Jato, which resulted in Lula's arrest, is a matter of public, you know, record, and there's an, an investigation starting into it. Yeah, but Brian, by a as yeah. you and I know, uh, the the Pope came out and said we have to stop this kind of lawfare process that's happening and overthrowing democratically elected uh, governments. The Pope said that. Pope Francis. Yeah. That didn't make the nightly news here. So where did you see this being reported? Was this? 
It was no, I report like we reported on it at Brazil. I think we're the only people <laughs> who did it. You know, I saw it because it was reported in the Brazilian press. You know, and and the thing that I think is really interesting about this is a lot of great people signed this. Chuy Garcia signed it. Rokana, Emmanuel Cleaver. You know, but Alexandra Ocasio Cortez didn't. She's wow. not. I'm worried about you know. I'm worried about her in relation to Latin America. <laughs> wow! Like, why did she sign this? Yeah, I would think that she would. Uh, one other thing, I just want to mention real Il- quick. Omar also obviously Ilian Omar obviously signed it, right? Of course, she would sign it. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. Um, I just wanted to mention to our uh, audience that uh, the other article that you wrote recently at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Media Blackout on Brazil's Anti-Bolsonaro Protests, that's a really important article to read because the New York Times was all over any protest that was opposed to Dilma or Lula. But anytime there's a, all of a sudden there's these massive protests against Bolsonaro that are happening all over the country and both the New York Times and sadly what used to be a kind Kind of lefty newspaper guardian uh, has really really turned in a different direction and they're also ignoring it so i just want to make sure brian that everybody reads your writing at fair.org that people follow you on twitter at brian m telesur find you uh, brazil wire where he works at brazilwire.com and where they've been reporting what he was just discussing about lava jato and lawfare you can find that at telesur english at telesurenglish.net brian it's always a pleasure to talk to you next time Instead of just having 20 minutes, I think I'm going to put about like 40 or 45 minutes into our conversation because I always really enjoy our talks. I'll be bugging you in the near future, my friend. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks. Well, it's winter down here, and I'm leaving for the Amazon in two days for Telesur to do filming of burning rainforests. So stay Watch uh, the TV show from the South on Tulsa if you want to see any of that. Yeah, and stay safe. We can sa- talk about it when I get back. Yeah, definitely. And stay safe, my friend. That's a very dangerous thing to come into. And I knew that I was saying uh, summer when it's winter down in Brazil, and now I got to know if the toilets go the other way. They obviously do. I mean, that's a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> right. I've never confirmed it. But. It's the only reason I want to go to the sem- Southern Hemisphere, so I can just stare, smoke pot and stare at that over and over and over again. That's all I want to do, Brian. Why do you think I've been living down here 25 years? <laughs> all right. Brian, love you, man. Take care, and I'll talk to you real Take soon. All right. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's get to the out. Where is my out here? There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you here on This Is Hell This Week. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.